When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Why should CBUS members have insurance through CBUS Super? Maybe it's because we understand the risks of working in our industries. Maybe it's because we offer cover that is tailored to protect building and construction workers, even those working at heights. Or maybe it's all of these reasons. So why not consider CBUS Super? CBUS for all of us. To consider if CBUS is right for you, visit cbussuper.com.au for a copy of the PDS. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. I had to fail, had to fall. This is The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Welcome to our third episode in isolation. We're in lockdown in London. You're heading in that direction in Australia, but we're really looking forward to bringing this episode to you, which includes a long feature interview with Nasser Hussain. Jeff, something that we've been um, back and forth with Nasser about for a while now, trying to find the right time, and and uh, this was absolutely the right time because obviously we're, we're blessed with with more of it than usual, and, and he gave us um, <laughs> a lot of it, and uh, it was uh, excellent going through uh, his life in cricket, really. Well, nobody can tell you at the moment that they're busy, really. No, no one can <laughs> say, you know, ah. Oh. I'm, I, I wasn't at home, you know, when the, the, the delivery people say, oh, there's nobody home. No, well, you know, <laughs> we rang the bell. Um, can't get away with it these days. So, yeah, we, we, I, think, I think NASA was happy to have something to do for a while um, and have a, a very decent length chat with us. So we've got into some detail there. You, you might need to break it up into a couple of chunks. But I guess nobody's listening on like a 15-minute commute anymore mm. where they, oh, I've got to turn it off because you've got to work. Um, you, you never have to turn us off. You can keep us playing. You can go and play the whole back catalogue and just play Final Word 24 hours a day. I wonder how many hours of stuff we've got if you put it all together. It'd have to be a few days worth at least. Well, yeah, we could... Well, let's do the maths on that real quick. Well, let's. Uh, how many you worked out last week, Jeff? How many episodes we've done since two thousand and fifteen? One hundred and seventy-three, maybe something like that. Eighty short ones. Eighty quarter hours would be twenty hours plus a hundred hours 100 of long form hours. stuff. Yeah, so it's at least one hundred and twenty hours. I'm not sure mm. what that works out to in. But I also appreciated the fact that people um, endured listening to me, sort of wheezing and hacking and sounding like I was about to drop off on the end of the microphone last week. The respiratory uh, canals are, are all clear and functioning this week, so you won't have to put up with much more of that. We're through the other side of that, which I'm sure everyone will be grateful for listening today. Uh, today, Jeff, is also two years since, well, maybe not today, might have been a couple of days ago, since the two-year ban on Stephen Smith leading the Australian cricket team expired. It's kind of a weird milestone in a way. I mean, it crept up up on us a little bit because there's no cricket being played, but um, when it happened, it felt like a a really long period of time. And, of course, he was out of the game for 12 of those months. But, yeah, it, it doesn't really feel as though there's a lot of pressure on changing anything whereas 12 months ago it was like well if smith does well Payne will be so old and ancient by then he'll he'll have to move on there'll be there'll be such a compelling case to, to change the the leadership over whereas now it's just kind of like well yeah that everything's kind of vaguely back to normal yeah and, and also they might not be playing a test match for god knows how long they're drawing up yeah, contingency yeah. plans this week for there not being a, an australian 
cricket summer in the season coming up because who knows where, where things will be at by that time of the year. They've got contingencies, they're putting contingencies in place for, for that sort of scenario just in case. So it, it might be a completely uh, moot point. Yeah, and, and Tim Payne did speak uh, today on the, the Zoom chats. It's a pretty cool thing that the media managers, Danny Rubin from the England team and Cole Hitchcock from the Australian team. So the two media lists that you know you and I are on, um, organising these like jumbo Zoom calls with all the different reporters. I haven't jumped onto one yet myself, but the the screenshots are fairly entertaining, and in the Looks case like of the Brady Bunch, like the the opening of the, you know, with everybody. <laughs> yes, that's right. <laughs> yeah, who's Alice on that? Um, but uh, but yeah, the the um, I reckon they should organise it in a way on Zoom where you have the subject right in the middle, like the one from England yesterday mm-hmm. had Joe Root kind of off to the side. But anyway, that's a that's just my obsessive compulsive tendencies kicking in. In Payne's chat today, he strongly hinted that Bangladesh they're just not expecting it to go ahead, and that's fair enough. It's scheduled to be. Second and third weeks of June. I mean, that's a reasonable reason to have the Bangladesh tour cancelled. There's been there've been some, as we've talked about repeatedly on the final words, some uh, gratuitous cancelling of Bangladesh tours and visits to Australia before. But it's hard to question um, them um, putting that one on hold. So all the attention's being channeled into uh, the India series that will take place at the end of the year. Whether or not we have a T Twenty World Cup for the men in October, that's obviously well in the air as well. So. Um, and I guess the, the, the other news out of that was that Tim Payne had his car broken into. He's had his car parked at the front of his house in Hobart and been using his garage to, to practice and stay fit and stay ready uh, through this period of isolation. But it ended up being a poor move because someone got in there and pitched all his stuff. So. What did they get from him? Like, what did they need? I think his wallet was in there was, was, the, uh, was the report that I read because the, his credit cards were accessed and, and all the rest of it. So. <sighs> Um, Don't leave your wallet in the car, Tim. But maybe that's just a Tasmania thing. I always feel like I could leave the doors unlocked when I'm in Tassie. Maybe that's naive of me, but things just feel like they happen at a uh, just a marginally slower clip down there. It's the sort of place where you can get away with the doors being open, like you've gone to the time machine, in, in a positive way. Oh, as, as Matthew Hayden famously told Remy's Raja during the 2015 World Cup, it's a hard state. Tasmania. It was founded on the shackles of hard labour, <laughs> as, as Matthew Hayden said. So d- don't do that. It's just reminding me of, you know, Simpsons. Uh, what are you looking at, Mo? Can I look too? <laughs> yeah, but it'll cost you. My wallet's in the car. <laughs> don't leave your wallet in the car. Homer leaves his wallet in the car. Uh, the other bit of news out of CA this week is that it looks like central contracts will be pushed back, which again sounds reasonable. They don't really know what the, the state of play is, so we won't find out in April, as mm. we usually do, who the contracted players are in the men's and women's teams, respectively. I heard Meg Lanning interviewed on Jared Waitley's show during the week, uh, just talking about the fact that she kind of can't believe that it happened at the MCG uh, three weeks ago. She's sort of periodically thinking, was I even there, or was that a dream, given uh, how mm. radically everything's changed since? I spoke to... Uh, Megan Shute last week also uh, Beth Mooney I've interviewed both of them um, about the night and about the campaign and all the rest of it and the sentiment was the same from those two senior players uh, that they're they're just grateful they were able to get the tournament in before everything shut down but um, yes contracts will be taking a a breather for the time being so that's pretty much all the news I mean we we, we'll have a couple of bits and bobs in the lightning round after our interview with Nasser Hussain but um, that's the the main stuff to, to consider off the top of the show. Other bits of news in our part of the world with publishing and writing is that uh, we sometimes do ads for the Night Watchman on this show, the the Wisdom's quarterly magazine. They've set up a whole new publication um, called The Pinch Hitter, which is going to be 
basically trying to feed and clothe freelance sports writers during these trying times. They're they're doing a, a football version and a cricket version as a fortnightly pay-as-you-like sort of digital magazine creation as far as I understand it. Yeah, that, that's right. So there'll be the opportunity to sign up on the Night Watchman website. And I'm sure we'll tell you more about that as we go through. But yeah, credit to the Night Watchman team for putting uh, that service out once a week. And it kind of is a service in a way because we all need something to read about cricket and we're obviously not going to be sitting in press boxes and uh, we're grateful uh, recipients of their forward thinking. Uh, also, uh, from a final word perspective, uh, there's going to be a podcast uh, as part of the Pinch Hitter coming out fortnightly, uh, hosted by Daniel Norcross and myself about the history of commentary. So we'll be going through right back to the uh, to the start in the early 1900s and, and tracing radio and television commentary to the modern day. It'll be not quite like the final word. It'll be more documentary style with interviews from a whole bunch of uh, commentators and historians. And we'll have that on the final word feed. So we said a couple of weeks ago that we're going to try and have additional content here. Uh, and that'll be one part of that. So you'll hear from Dan and me every fortnight. So when you see this come up in a couple of days, when you get our preview app, you might wonder, well, what's this all about? It's, I wouldn't call it a spin-off as such because it's a very separate, distinct product embedded within Pinch Hitter, uh, but um, I'm, I'm pleased to, to report that it'll also be accessible on the final word feed, Jeff. It's a point in time where you've got the opportunity to follow up on these kind of projects that might be banging around the back of your head and uh, haven't actually had time to sit down and flesh them out, but now is the time with much, much time on our hands. Some other good news that I noticed During the week, Adam, our campaign to get Rob Moody and Order of Australia Honour is is up and running. It's got a a few mentions in the mainstream press as well. Uh, (laughs) They've become aware, starting with Andrew Wu's reporting for The Age, that, that, that we want this to happen. We want to make sure that we get the auteur behind the Rob Belinda 2 YouTube channel, some formal recognition for his services to the country. So uh, we'll be working out how to make that nomination and so on. Uh, but the more people talk about it, the more it'll become irresistible, mood mental. Oh, I was I was wrapped by this uh, when we mentioned it on the show last week that we thought that it was only appropriate that Rob Moody be recognised for services to cricket and culture and history and all the rest of it. Uh, people got totally on board with that. Uh, Rob's been uh, running almost a, a cricket jukebox uh, in the last couple of weeks since we've all been in various forms of lockdown. So if you ask for something, he will look into his archive and almost always he, he will have it uh, and he'll he'll immediately upload it for you. So it is a great service that he provides. He's a wonderful human being as well. He's been um, sort of part of the, the Twitter uh, zeitgeist for, for a long time and in, in our circles and we just love corresponding with him. And as you say, Andrew Wu for The Age and then Nick Savage for the Murdoch Mastheads both wrote about this and the idea that uh, on the final word we started this campaign and we're proud to have done so. I had a quick look through the week, Jeff. There is a, um, a nomination form and there's a whole bunch of hurdles you need to clear. But I'm going to put the, the, the shout out here today. If you are someone who's familiar with the honours process in Australia to the point where you know how to navigate quite a complicated website and you know the, the tricks of the trade, do get in touch because I'm sure that um, if we can uh, make our case compelling uh, when we get to uh, what will be, what I suppose it's June, isn't it? The next time they, they do a round mm. of awards is, is around the Queen's birthday weekend. Maybe we've, we've left our run too late for that. But certainly by um, January 
next year uh, when we're hopefully through the other end of the crisis and Rob's considerable contribution uh, has been realised around the place. Uh, um, I've seen during the week tons of professional cricketers. Damien Martin was on Twitter the other day saying that he was sitting back with Rob Moody videos uh, showing his son when he used to be fit and trim and smacking them through the covers. Not that Marto isn't fit and trim now, but um, that, that, that were his words about being a, a lean machine as an Australian player and, and Rob Moody's uh, giving everyone that opportunity at the moment. So get behind Rob Moody, Order of Australia. And yes, if you do know a bit about the process, feel free to, to drop us a line uh, on the email, on Patreon, on Twitter and all the usual places. The Seabus Super Performer of the Week. This is something we've been crowning christening um smashing a champagne bottle across the bows of over the last few weeks and it generally involves people doing something to do with cricket but there isn't any happening so uh, we're we're being reduced like many sports segments to looking at what cricketers are doing on social media (laughs) um and it's there's really no competition this week it's got to go to mark wood and jason roy for the incredible dancing that they've been putting together online um mark wood with the 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 deeply creative uh, interpretive dance style involving the moves of the serving the tiramisu the sexy kitten um the the inverted shoulder and then jason roy coming in with the napoleon dynamite tribute act um with with the full kit the full get up and everything and as somebody who was often called napoleon dynamite in my mid-20s when I bore a more than passing resemblance. I felt a special affinity with that particular one. I, I, I knew the dance too at one stage and, and I, I actually own a small flip book, like one of those little, um, those ones where you flick through the pages and it's just an animated version of the entire Napoleon Dynamite dance. So I've, I've still, still got that one in the back pocket. Through Jason Roy, you were seen, as they say <laughs> these days. Yeah. Uh, Mark Wood, um, I mentioned last week that Phil Walker's got a great interview in Wisdom Cricket Monthly with him this month. Um, I think Wisdom put up on their Twitter feed, what have we done to deserve Mark Wood? Set in the most positive possible light. And I sort of share that uh, sentiment. He, he's such a great character to have around the game. And if you haven't seen that that dance, um, it's, it's well worth a look. He, um, he doesn't mind uh, making himself the, the subject of laughs. He's also um, a fantastic cricketer, as we saw as recently as December and January uh, in South Africa when he bowled so brilliantly for England in that test series. So good on him for, for keeping us uh, watching and, and keeping us interested through this period. Another way that... Um, Another contender, perhaps, for the Seabus Super Performer of the Week might have been Shane Warne for his work on Twitter as well by naming his team, uh, well, the team of players who he most... How would you frame it? His best team of those he played with for Australia through his span. So I guess that goes from 1991 to 2007. Um, And, Jeff, some interesting inclusions and some interesting omissions. Well, the... the key thing and the absolutely astonishing thing is that Steve Waugh has finally made it into a team that Shane Warne picked where the criteria involved being a good player. Now, I think famously Steve Waugh wasn't even in the, was it the top 50 that Warne put together for a newspaper some years ago? I think it was something <laughs> like that. There was, there was a 50 players he'd played with or against or maybe it was 25, but he, you know, Steve Waugh hadn't got anywhere near um, that list. It didn't have a sniff whatsoever. And so maybe, um, maybe after all this time Shane has taken on board a, a little bit of the um, some of the feedback from people who've suggested that there might be a bit more to do with personal animosity than some sort of uh, true basis of, of selection when he makes these kind of pronouncements and now Steve Waugh is in- Wasn't there something else a couple of weeks ago where, where Warren was sort of almost forced to con- concede that 
War was a good player. I don't know what it was exactly, but it was some form of commentary around um, something or another. And so maybe there is a thawing of sorts. You know what it was? It was it was that game that was where Warm was going to be playing in the bushfire relief. Uh, you were there, Jeff. Mm-hmm. I know he didn't in the end because he had overseas travel, but if I recall correctly, Warren and War were going to either be in the same team or whatever it was. It, yeah, it does suggest that the two can now be in the same room, which is nice for people of our age. It's not like, not nice seeing mummy and daddy fight. <laughs> Although I must say, and Alan Border's got one of these teams out today. Do we need a moratorium on teams through this period? I mean, I, well, I, I'm guilty of this. I picked my favourite Hawthorne team, my best Hawthorne team from 1990 to 2020 the other day. And I know, Jeff, you picked your, your best Test eleven with the surname starting with L in this century or something equally obscure. Yeah, I got I got dragged into this online. I'm, look, I'm not proud of myself. Oh, I got dragged I got dragged into this. He says I got dragged into spending two hours on this. It was all it was all <laughs> the all the fault of our. Um, you loved friend, it. Our friend and colleague Matt Clemo, who was complaining about only being able to find one wicketkeeper whose name started with C. Dinesh Chandamal was the only wicketkeeper he could find, and um, and so you know eventually I I got sucked into to doing the L one, but it was twenty first century was the rule which really crueled me because um, if it hadn't been constrained to that the bowling attack that that I put together was Lindwall Lily Larwood and Laker and fuck me that's a bowling attack but um yeah. you know that that's only if I'm allowed to go all time if I have to go 21st century then the best I can put together is Brett Lee Nathan Lyon Jermaine Lawson and um Saranga Lakmal I think it was so you know not quite as imposing as the um, no. the, the 20th century version so uh, Shane Warne's the other nominee but Jeff I think it's fair to say that there's no real doubt this week that the Seabus performer Seabus super performer of the week I should say is Mark Wood no Mark Wood gets the gong and uh, that's thanks to our sponsors, Seabus Super, who invest directly back into the building and construction industry across Australia, creating jobs for members and supporting the industry, which is particularly important at the moment. Check out their work at seabussuper.com.au. That's where you can find the PDS and you can be reminded that past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance, as we all know right now. Uh, Jeff, what time is it? It is time for Nerd Pledge. Uh, That's better. Last week your voice was buggered and you couldn't do it, but you've recovered and here we uh, are. I could. I could do it this week. Nerd Pledge. It's the game we play with nerds and pledges. It's the game we play where people send us a pledge, a donation on the Patreon page and... It pertains to a cricketing number. They give us a number of dollars and cents that indicates something about cricket, and we have to work out what it is. Nerd Pledge. We've got to revisit a couple, Adam. Uh, last week from Dane Hanstead, we had $3.29, $3.29, and we were talking about Michael Clark and Inzamar Mulhak and Fred Grace, and, uh, and, and then Dane got in touch afterwards via patron, sent us a message and said it was none of those, none of the above. And then I also noticed coming in after that show actually from Alan another 329 and, and my theory is that Alan must have heard us talking about the other 329 options and said I've got a better 329 I'm going to send that in so my guess is that Alan and Dane are actually of a like mind on this 329 because there is another one it's not a player's score but it is a great number and you know what it is and I know what it is yes because Dane did give me a clue in his Patreon message which was the he didn't need the clue it was come the, on it you was know it the Irish 
Clover, and that didn't take long to put the pieces together. Of course, it's the it's the score that Ireland made when they knocked off England uh, in uh, 2011 at the World Cup. They needed 328. They got one more, to be sure, to be sure. Uh, they got there uh, from 49.1 overs, of course, Kevin O'Brien. I mean, what a man. 113 off 63 balls. His century in 50 deliveries, the quickest in World Cup history, a mark which remains to this day. I was in mm. Dublin with uh, Kevin and a bunch of the other Irish players this time last year. Vish and I went over there and spent a couple of days interviewing them uh, ahead of their test match at Lords, which of course uh, took place after the World Cup in July. But um, we had a chance to sit down with him and talk about that, that day, that fateful evening at the Chinnaswamy Stadium. Of course, Kevin O'Brien, World Cup century, the first test century for Ireland as well, coming at uh, Malahide against Pakistan uh, back in, in 2018. So a fine career and a fine addition to the Nerd Pledge Gallery. And I'm going to guess that that is Alan's number as well as Dane Hanstead's number. So thanks to those two for the 329s. Also, coincidentally, at the same time, I've been using this time while uh, stuck at home without much useful to do to clear out all my old inboxes, go through emails, reply to people who I've forgotten to reply to for a year and a half. And I found this email in my Guardian inbox from Jerry Murphy that came in during the ashes last year, which, you know, as you know, we get thousands literally of emails during the ashes so there's no chance to actually read them all at the time but he, he sent me an email about Ireland and he said back in 1993 the touring Aussies stopped in Dublin for a knockabout at Clontarf Hayden made 135 Slater and Mark Waugh made half centuries and then Alan Porter walked in and made a ton from 41 balls <laughs> He went from 50 to 100 in 12 deliveries. Oh, I remember that. Yep, including yep. five sixes from an over from Angus Dunlop. Um, so, which this just blows my mind to begin with. Alan Border, you know, the gritty, tough, grinded out merchant making 141 balls. Um, then says Jerry, as, as Ireland struggled along to a total of 89 in reply, Tim May was fielding on the boundary, chatting, eating hot dogs and sipping people's beer on the sly. He was about to sign an autograph for Jerry Murphy when a very pissed off Alan Border marched over and tore strips off him for being unprofessional. <laughs> At that stage, Ireland needed 300 to win with two or three wickets <laughs> remaining. <laughs> Uh, so thank you, Jerry, for the email. Um, I don't know if you're a listener to the show, but you're in the show now, so I appreciate that. Great insight into Alan Border. Uh, we've got one more to revisit before we crack on with a couple of new numbers. So James Garlic was at 369 last week. He got in touch with me uh, on Twitter and on Patreon to give me the clue uh, uh, to look at his location on Twitter, which is Wakefield. Wakefield is 10 miles south of Headingley, so I'm thinking Leeds, I'm thinking Yorkshire, um, of course who who else uh, but the great Yorkshireman Fred Truman you need a big hammer to drive a big nail uh, 369 was his cap number for England, although I'm sure they, they didn't think of it in those terms when Truman was playing for England, I doubt they, they really cared too much what their cap numbers were but he was the 369th man to play for England and of course for a time there was the world record holder for the amount of wickets he took uh, bowling his beautiful outswingers it is kind of hilarious to me when you, you look down various countries for their cap numbers and most of the countries are maybe just past 200 or so. Um, you know, Australia, you, you're getting up into the um, into the 400s, uh, you know, up to getting close to 500. Yeah, and yeah. And England, you're getting, what, getting close to 800 or something. <laughs> they just keep going and going and going forever. I'm like, how many fucking cricketers did they go through? It's absolutely astonishing. 
It's not a bad measure. I mean, when you consider they play, I mean, they, they've played more test cricket than Australia. I'm not sure what the margin is, but they have played more, but certainly not enough to justify the, the, gr- the, the, the number of caps they've handed out compared to the Australian men's team uh, across the journey from 1877. It probably says a fair bit about um, the volatility of selection and how stable some of those yep. Australian sides have been, but yeah, there is a big margin. So I guess 369, so Truman debuted in... Oh, Christ, I'm, I'm going to take a punt here. About 54 or 55 or something like that. I know it was mid-50s. And when was Australia's 369th cap handed out? It was, well, it's roughly, it's roughly Shane Warne, isn't it? Is it even, is it possibly Shane Warne? Ricky Ponting's 366, I think. Oh, right, sorry. Warne's 350, isn't he? So, but even so, you're, you're looking at mid-90s. So Australia got to, sorry, England got to um, 369, about 40 years ahead of Australia. Michael Kasprovich is 369 for Australia. There you go. Yeah, so, so England go up to 695 test cricketers at the moment and Australia 458 Jai Richardson the most recent so um yeah slight slight variation all right let's get a couple of new numbers in this week very quickly uh Richard Johnson has sent one through uh who aside from being a scene out of the Austin Powers movie uh, my high school drama teacher was named Dick Johnson I don't think it's going to be the same one but you know (laughs) if that's you hello (laughs) um hello Mr Johnson 5.59 from Richard Johnson. I've still got the cap numbers list open in front of me, so I can see that that's sitting next to Andy Caddick. There's no other country that's got up to 5.59, so that's one possibility. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess we're going to talk about Andy Caddick uh, with, with Nasser Hussain. Indeed, I know we are because we've already interviewed Nasser Hussain, so I know Andy <laughs> Caddick does come up. Um, so it, it's, it's, uh, it's unlikely, warp. but it could be. Uh, 5.59 is the, is the number of runs that, uh, that Australia plundered against New Zealand in 2015 in the test that ended Mitchell Johnson's career but it was the David Warner's 242 I want to say in a day or whatever it was uh, which was the most amount of runs made in a single day uh, on the first day of a test match in Australia we were there for that Brutal, uh, brutal five days of cricket. Attritional, uh, the definition of attritional cricket over there. But I reckon, Jeff, we're, we're looking at some bowling figures here. Yeah, I, I think that's more likely. I mean, I I was digging around for a while trying to figure this out. I find Mitchell Johnson had a five for 59 at Centurion, but that was the second innings of the game where he took 12 for, so he took the seven for in the first inning. So I was thinking, well, you, you wouldn't really go for the second innings number above the first. It is... Jackson Bird's best career bowling. Might have a big Jack Bird fan in Christchurch, that test match that you and I were at when Jackson Bird came in after James Pattinson did his back again, was it? James Pattinson in that test match. No, Pattinson played in in Christchurch with Jackson Bird. It was Peter Siddle uh, after the first test, but that's the test where at one point, uh, as you might recall from our interview with with Pato on the final word in August... Yeah, he 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 torn his stomach muscle. He had a stress fracture of the back, and did he have a broken toe, foot foot or toe or something? He broke his toe, and he's rolled out to bowl uh, all at the same time. But yes, Jackson Bird five for fifty nine in the second dig, and the other one, um, the that was the best bowling figures five for fifty nine of Lenny Pascoe in a centenary test, not the one we usually talk about in nineteen seventy seven, but the other centenary test at nineteen eighty at Lords, where Kim Hughes, of course, made that famous hundred and went ever so close to twin tons, but. Pasco got on the honours board with 5 for 59. And there's a link there with Ian Chappell, who we've previously interviewed on The Final Word. You can yes. find that interview if you dig back through the timeline. So there are a few options there, but I think we're going to vote for Lenny Detanovich, uh, Len Pasco, 5 for 59 best career figures. Richard Johnson, let us know if we're right or wrong. Send us a message on the Patreon page. And the other number we'll do in this week's show is Will Sanford, 
403 from Will. Now, 403, I was looking at this, I was chewing it over, and and it's it could be slightly elliptical because 403 is right next to 404, just like second comes right after first. And 404, of course, is the run chase that, that was the record test run chase for a very long time when Bradman and, and Morris chased down 404 to beat England in 1948. That means that England's lead was 403. So it could be there. Yeah, that's right. I think the target might have been 403, come to think of it. I haven't got it in front of me, although I can bring it up as we talk. I, I had a quick squiz. You might remember a couple of weeks ago, I was quite desperate to link one nerd pledge to the next. And the best way I was able to do that was that 3,403 deliveries in test cricket from Len Pasco. So he bowled. Um, <laughs> of course, 403 is the forbidden error code when you go to a webpage that won't open. It's 404, isn't it? 404 is the other one. 404. 404 is the other one. 403 is the forbidden page and 404 is the one that, you know, oh. the page is just fucked. Um, Paul Rifle bowled 6,403 balls in test cricket if you're wondering, 3,000 more than Lenny. Uh, yeah, the, the 1943 test at Leeds is all time for lots of reasons but how high scoring is 1943? it? 1943? 1948. 1948 rather. 1943 they were busy. Not, yes they were. They all had other things on their minds in 1943 as we'll come to with Dan Norcross in a tick. Uh, look at the, the scorecard. Just the, 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 the top line numbers. England made 496 then Australia made 458 so very high scoring. England make 365 for 8 declared in their third innings and then Australia go on of course to chase and make 404 for 3 on the final day. I think they needed to make all of those runs on the final day. In fact I'm certain of that so it was a, a hell of a clip they went at. Uh, they batted on the final day for 114 overs so I guess it was a, a different world in terms of the amount of overs they were able to get in. Morris 182 uh, Bradman 173 not out and Neil Harvey on his first test tour of course uh, made four not out at the end. So a very famous victory for a very long time it was the, the most amount of runs made in the fourth inning successfully. I think that was overtaken by India in 1975 or something like that against the West Indies might be the other way around uh, and of course now it's 418 one of those figures Jeff that we we come back to time and time again when we're covering test cricket and there's an outlandish declaration and we, and we go back to the the highest fourth innings chase page and it's one I'm sure you've got bookmarked amongst your myriad pages Absolutely. on your on your browser I don't actually need to have it bookmarked because if I type in H-I-G-H the autocomplete says highest fourth innings <laughs> test total and then we just go straight to it. <laughs> Wonderful. So it probably is uh, 400. Let's hope it is 403, although it might not be. So Will Sanford, if we've got it wrong, do tell us. But our working assumption is your 403, your forbidden error is really uh, 404 or, or something like that. And if it's not, then let us know. Do you know what? I don't think it is because I think I know what it is. Oh, you found something better. Uh, I, th- I, th- I think if Will's a listener to this show, as much as he would appreciate the 403 and 404 from Bradman and, and Morris and the chase, it's more likely to be the 403 that's stitched on the side of the baggy green cap of Peter Siddle. Ah, I've done it again. I've, I've, uh, I've, I've overcomplicated matters. I haven't gone to the, the source material. <laughs> and it's Peter Siddle. Well, we're going to have a bit more to say about Peter Siddle later on. Uh, actually, we might as well now, Jeff, given... Let's just go with the flow here. Did you see that Peter Siddle is, who of course, is no longer nationally contracted, uh, is in talks with other states to continue his... Uh, Sheffield Shield career uh, next summer, which is entirely reasonable given that um, he'll now need to, you know, source as much money as he can at the the back end of his career. He won't be playing for much longer. But uh, there were a report from Dan, there was a report, I should say, from Dan Cherney in the 
in the uh, in the Age uh, a couple of days ago, saying that he's talking both to both WA and Tasmania. So he might stay at Victoria, he might move on, but he's entitled to do that now that he's no longer a, a centrally contracted player. It still feels sad. It still feels like the first verse of Mr. Brightside being played in in cricketing terms. He won't do it, will he? How how could I, how could we how could I see him play somewhere else? I, you know, I, I want to be happy for him. I, I want him to be happy. I want to wish him all the best. But I, I just I wish he'd stay. I wish he'd stay, Pete. Well, there it is, Pete Siddle, cap number four hundred three. And yes, I I just get the feeling that somehow he'll he'll end up uh, in the big V next season, one way or another. Uh, Jeff, before we move away from Nerd Pledge, uh, we're very grateful to the many people who've um, heeded our call last week. We we mentioned the the tough time that it is for well, for everyone really, but not least those in the events industry um, with no event to be had. So our um, our income uh, more of it needs to now come from the final word. To be blunt, and uh, thank you to so many people who up their existing Nerd Pledge. Of course, will will get to those. Uh, in a in an orderly fashion. Yeah, we've got a whole stack, probably fifty odd to get through, which is amazing stuff. And thank you, thanks to everyone for that support. Um, it, and yeah, a lot of people who are on the page have decided to go to another number to give us another challenge. So what that means is we've put those numbers down in the list. We're working our way through them. We're up to about the start of February, I think, in terms of when people signed up. So uh, if we haven't got to you yet, um, hang in there. And if you think that we might have missed you then just give us a message on patreon and we'll sort it out and if you want to sign up to uh, get your number on the show it's patreon.com slash the final word you can send us in a number to see if you can stump us there and you can also send us a message as david's done this week who's a new patron he's an aussie expat who spends most of his time in indonesia and where there's not a lot of cricket he noted that our pod last year was a way for him to reconnect to the game he came across uh, the show via a lovely shout out through will anderson on his own uh, podcast and, and thanks again to will who's ever so kind to us he's been a guest on the show before so if you want to go back into the archive and hear our interview with Will from last year, you can do so. And yeah, and again, just reinforcing that we're ever so grateful to everyone who's been so kind and jumped on in the last couple of weeks. Uh, Patreon.com forward slash the final word. That's the end of Nerd Pledge for this week. We are now going to get into our feature interview with NASA Hussein via our World War II update from Daniel Norcross. It's Pat A News, World War II for the final word. And while we should all be binge drinking and going on a three-week orgy of one-night stands with land girls and impossibly wiry airmen sporting Rory Burns haircuts in celebration of two arguably psychotic acts of mass murder in Hiroshima and Nagasaki that has brought this long conflict to a macabre and sinister conclusion using weapons that will haunt every waking hour of every human on the planet for all eternity, well, it looks like the goalposts have been changed. Last Sunday, at around 4am, some 6,600 tonnes of bombs, a wartime high, should have been dropped overnight on several Japanese cities. The city of Toyama would have been totally destroyed. At 6am, the Allies were due to emerge victorious from the Battle of the Breakthrough, bringing an end to all Japanese resistance in Burma, as the Allies tightened the noose around Japan, with US bombers completing their mining of Japan's major ports. And then, at noon, the United States was supposed to drop an atomic bomb on Hiroshima, Japan, killing approximately 80,000 civilians in the initial blast. At 4pm, President Truman had plans to deliver a radio address in which he would threaten to unleash more nuclear devastation on Japan. And the Soviet Union would finally declare war against Japan. Which is a bit like bringing Malcolm Marshall on to bowl against Chris Martin with New Zealand nine down, needing another 784 for victory and two days left in the match. But there you go. 
At midnight on Monday morning, approximately 25,000 Japanese were in line to die as the U.S. prepared to drop a second atomic bomb on Nagasaki, Japan. Thereafter, we were pretty much home and hosed. A bit of late dithering from Emperor Hirohito delaying the final surrender until around noon yesterday, resulting in the immediate resumption of automobile manufacturing in the U.S. You think I'm joking? No, sir, Bob. Those Yankees have been champing at the bit to get back on the Cadillac production line, and there's no time like the present. There really is no time like the present. Late last night, Winston Churchill invented the Iron Curtain descending across the continent from Stettin in the Baltic to Trieste in the Adriatic. Today was supposed to be VJ Day, as university cricketers dutifully lined up to concede 600 for four before being blasted out by Colpac Quickies, Morty Morkle and Kyle Abbott. But in a cruel and unusual twist of fate, it appears that the Nazis have invented a time virus, and assuming that this summer is completely wiped out, we instead go careering back to late August 1941, and Nazi German forces destroy Russia's 16th and 20th armies in the Smolensk pocket. Germans capture more than 300,000 soldiers. Romania kicks off the 73-day siege of Odessa, which will end in October with the Romanian occupation of the Ukrainian city. Later that day, the Soviets suffer a crushing defeat at Roslav near Smolensk as the Nazi Germans capture some 38,000 Russian prisoners of war. Both Britain and the Soviet Union promise military aid to Turkey in the event that Germany pursues a policy of aggression against the Eurasian nation. In Chongqing, China... It's largely in ruins after a week of bombing at the hands of the Japanese air forces. Joseph Jacobs, a German spy, becomes the last person executed in Britain's legendary Tower of London. And in Syracuse, Sicily suffers an RAF bombing raid. In the Ukraine, Soviet forces mount an intense defence against German invaders. Spitsbergen, a remote Norwegian island best known as a historical whaling centre, becomes a strategic war base with the arrival of British commandos. And in a stunning execution of the scorched earth war strategy, the Soviets will blow up their Dnieper Dam, the largest in the world. Vichy France's anti-terrorist laws lead to the execution by guillotine of three members of the French resistance. The Japanese government sends a memo to President Franklin Roosevelt, remember him? Offering disingenuous assurances that Japan has no imperialist designs on any foreign nation. And the last rail supply route to Leningrad is blocked when Nazi German troops occupy Mga, Russia. First thing tomorrow, in a curious echo of Matt Lucas's Baked Potatoes says song, Potato Pete, a British food ministry creation, will launch a campaign that urges citizens to eat plenty of unrationed potatoes. And why not? On Thursday, the Nazi German army will place Leningrad in a state of siege. A desperate Joseph Stalin will ask Winston Churchill for immediate military aid. The siege will last for 900 days, or until early January next year, according to our new and frankly ghastly timeline. But keep those upper lips as stiff as Meg Lanning's. Stock up on own brown gin and cheap plonk. Replay every ball from all your favourite test matches and learn how to use Zoom. See it. Say at home. Sort it. Or something. Uh, g'day, this is Will Anderson and you're listening to The Final Word with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins.
Welcoming to the show a man who played international cricket for 14 years, captaining England for 45 test matches between 1999 and 2003, the third most for an England skipper. 14 test tons, 30,000 runs in professional cricket, 6,200s along the way. These days, a senior commentator and master interviewer for Sky Cricket. It's Nasser Hussain. Welcome to The Final Word. Good morning, guys. Hope you're enjoying lockdown. Well, well, I wanted to start there, actually. I mean, it, it was obviously an unusual time for us to be interviewing you. We're doing it via our Zoom screens and, and various bits of technology. But, I mean, it was only a few weeks ago that you were in Melbourne at the MCG, 86,500 people there, and, and it's a World Cup final, which you're calling. Um, to think how quickly the world's changed, and now a man of, you know, I guess your credentials as a commentator travelling around the world doing your job, now you're at home, like we all are, um, sort of just wondering what's going to happen next. Yeah, it was quite... It hit me, actually, a week ago when we did did go into lockdown that that was two weeks before that you were strolling along those lovely back streets to the mcg with about eighty-six thousand people waiting for katie perry to start off um and then you couldn't have a, a more opposite could you polar opposite you come back and literally apart from close family you don't see anyone at all and it's amazing as you say how quickly this thing has moved um, two weeks on, I don't know what things are like in Australia now. They're sort of going through everything that we're going through, but it is remarkable how quickly things have moved on. That was an amazing day, I have to say, at the MCG. And I have to say that um, Australia do their women's sport absolutely magnificent. The whole tournament, uh, the coverage of the tournament, the coverage of all their women's sport, when I was out there for that month, uh, was phen- phenomenal and all credit to them. Uh, Nas, we'll uh, definitely um, talk to you about your, your Sky Cricket uh, profession these days when we, um, as we sort of chronologically work through your life in cricket, the way we normally do these interviews is we start at the very start and, and we work our way through and, uh, and, and sort of don't miss any beats or we'll try not to miss too many beats anyway. So which really takes us all the way back to, to India and Madras where you grew up. I mean, your birthday was just a few days ago, but um, those early years um, of your life growing up, uh, in Madras, and and I uh, just wanted to get your first memories of the game with with your with your older brothers and your dad, and and how you recall cricket when you think about it now at the very very start. Well, I was brought up basically at the Chepok Stadium, which is obviously the stadium they still do. If you look from the commentary box or the media centre, if you look in the far right, there is still a little section, uh, the MCC, the Madras Cricket Club. And that is where I was brought up uh, on the outfield there. My dad would be the plain snooker or squash against some of the sort of bearers inside and or more generally just sat at the bar waffling on about the game. Um, and, and we would be outside. He played a little bit for Tamil Nadu um, and me and my brothers used to just kill time. I was obviously very, very young. I left India when I was six or seven and uh, but most of my memories even back then were just growing up um, on the outfield of the Chepok Stadium watching my brothers or my dad play. And your brother who you played with was about to line up in the over 50s World Cup which has now been cancelled because of the shutdown. (laughs) I've never had so many updates with my brother in my life about (laughs) coronavirus in coronavirus (laughs) in South Africa. He He even sent me a video I've been run out he says by Mark Elaine, I've looked at the footage. Now, I am somewhat, some of a run-out expert on these things. And I have to say, the running between the wickets has gone through the family, I'm afraid. And uh, he was run out, I think it might have been, against South Africa in that game. But um, 
No, he's back now. He had to try and work out how to get back. They all got a little bit stranded, to be honest, trying to get back from Cape Town. It was really disappointing for all of those. It was a well-run tournament. And halfway through, they were suddenly called into a hotel room and, and just said, sorry, we're pulling the plug on this. So it was really disappointing for him. He'd been looking forward to that for a long, long time. So your dad, uh, um, when you moved to England, when you're six or seven, ends up running a, or owning a, an indoor cricket centre, as I uh, was reading when, when preparing for this. And um, I, I was thinking about... You do you do some prep for this, do you? Oh, you know. We've we got to do the arts before we talk to someone like you, Nas. <laughs> uh, and, I, and, and I read there that uh, thus began the relationship with you and Graham Gooch, early days you bowling your leg breaks at, at the man who would obviously go on to be the England captain, a few before you, but uh, and you would obviously share the dressing room with at the start of your international career. Um, what was it like as a young lad sort of coming through the Essex ranks, um, playing representative cricket at a pretty young age and, and being this sort of uh, next big thing leggy and, and coming up against players like Graham Gooch in the nets and not only in the nets but sort of in the school that your your dad was owning? Yeah, my dad ran a cricket school in Ilford. It's still there. It's just basically a, a tin shed. You could drive past it a hundred times. If you go in there about a week later, you're still sort of smelling of the cricket school and we used to always joke about that it is a proper old-fashioned none of this modern technology with video analysis and all that it is a it is a shed it's always been a shed but it's been a shed that's produced some pretty good cricketers i have to be honest and obviously in that area of east london there's a big british asian community in fact when i grew up we used to have a sort of british west indian caribbean net there an indian net pakistani net and a very sort of white english net there's no other way of putting it i'm afraid and the banter and the arguments and the chat when india were playing pakistan or when we were being whitewashed by the west indies side and you know in those days the british west indian community absolutely were all over that series and viv richards was smashing us around it was a great place to grow up and i spent most of while other kids were on nintendo game boys or whatever i was down there seven hours a day with my brothers and just soaking in the atmosphere and you're absolutely right occasionally because Gucci was from that part of the Essex he was a a Leighton Stone boy anyone from that side of Essex like Graham Gooch and John Lever and Stuart Turner and the, the South Essex guys used to come down for a net and my dad because he ran the cricket school he used to just sort of push me in that net and said go and bowl to Graham Gooch and you know as a little 11 year old leg spinner it was a threat. It was a, a thrill, but also absolutely daunting. And as you say, I ended up in the same dressing room with the great man and and some of these guys that were my childhood heroes. Did he remember you once you ended up in the same dressing room from that eleven year old? Uh, he did. Yeah. I mean, that's that's Gucci for you. Gucci will remember. Gucci. Um, the one that couldn't. Keith Fletcher was. He could never get my name right, so he just <laughs> ended up calling me. He called me Gnasher or something for about five years. Fletch was terrible with names, <laughs> but Gucci, because I sort of ran around the cricket school like a headless chicken. Any time I got him out, which wasn't often, he would sort of remember that oh, you're the young leg spinner that got me out occasionally down the cricket school. But Gucci, what you see with Gucci is what you get. Really, very patriotic. Um, remembers everyone he meets. He still does a very good scholarships. Um, system he, he uh, promotes it and pays for it himself um, at Essex and he's very much an Essex man through and through 
Were you old enough to have a sense of culture shock when you moved to England or were you so young that you don't really remember the before period very much? That's a good question. Very good question, actually. It, it is different for my brothers. They really remember India. Uh, they left, obviously, a little bit later, 12, 13 years old. So for me, I wish I did remember a lot more of India. I'll go back on tours when I was a player, as a captain, and various aunties and uncles would come up and go, oh, do you remember when I took you to school? And I'm like, I'll, I'll say yes, even though I was four at the time, you know. Um, but um, so I do wish, and coming to Ilford, it was the, the biggest thing, obviously, was climate, the, the change in climate, freezing cold. In that indoor cricket school, we didn't have heaters or anything like that. So a January morning at seven o'clock, putting the nets up in the indoor cricket school at Ilford wasn't exactly the Chepok Stadium. Um, but, you know, uh, I always have to say that every time I went back to India, um, I was absolutely thrilled that they sort of took me as one of their own. You know, they were very proud, even when they were hammering us or whatever, even when Giles was bowling over the wicket into the rough to Tendulkar, they still sort of... Um, were very proud that this sort of Indian lad had gone off and played for England and captained England. In terms of the cultural link back to India, there's a, there's a, I think it's a passage in your book that, that talks about when you lost the leg break as a kid uh, and how you were determined to sort of uh, still make it as a cricketer um, because you just didn't want to let your dad down who'd invested all his time in your career and all the rest of it. And that sort of feels like a link back to that Indian heritage as well. Perhaps the idea that, you know, uh, that the, the society, how important it is to be uh, um, able to deliver for your parents. Absolutely. I mean, you know, that is a very cultural thing. That a, cricket is in the blood of any Indian. My dad was Indian, simple as that. Madras born through and through. I, I consider myself English, but my dad was an Indian. Mm. And my dad, you know, I was either going to be a doctor or I was going to play cricket. And I was not bright enough to be a doctor, that is for certain. So you're going to be in that indoor school every day and you're getting Graham Gooch out age 14. And the cunning plan, the master plan is all going perfectly and then suddenly I shot up a foot in height and I literally got the yips it was like the golfer missing three foot putt I literally could not land it in the net I hit the top of the ceiling I'd hit the side net double bounces and the look of amazement on my dad's face and you know I was opening the bowling England schools myself and Michael Atherton bowling leg spin and literally the next year I couldn't get into any side bowling leg spin so I had to work on my batting. There was no other option, basically. You mentioned Mike Atherton there. I mean, it's, it's kind of amazing that you're born a few, few days apart. You both go on to, obviously, Captain England. Uh, you now travel the world together as members of the Sky team. But you first met uh, as England schools players, as a couple of leg spinners. I mean, uh, what do you remember of Mike at that time? And uh, do you guys get a sort of a chance to occasionally reflect on the fact that you've had these intertwining lives for the last 40 years? Absolutely. I mean, Athos is sad enough to, I think the other day in wherever we were, South Africa, he came into the com box and brought up some, you know, Essex-Lancashire game or an England schoolboys game or a Bunbury's game. There's all this stuff now. You talk about technology there. There's all this stuff now. You can go back to your schoolboy days. I don't. <laughs> Athos does. Um, and bring up games of when he got you out or when you got him out, etc., um, and when I was growing up, there were three lads, actually, uh, two very famous, one not so much, uh, Mark Ramprakash at Middlesex. Even though he was the year below me and Ath, he was the one we all wanted to be. Ramps was the good-looking, swashbuckling, 
you know, he used to smash it absolutely everywhere. The stories of Ramps as a schoolboy cricketer were phenomenal. There were so those Ramps at Middlesex, up north, who Northern schools was Athers at Manchester Grammar School. He was your old-fashioned sort of Jeffrey boycott over my dead body sort of batsman that used to churn out runs. And there was another lad, Trevor Ward at Kent, who played for Kent for a number of years very successfully. He was another one that used to churn out schoolboy run so always as a schoolboy i used to look at what wardy uh, ramps and mike atherton were doing and it was sort of not that that's what drove me not the sort of my dad forcing me down the cricket school as a young boy and not even play for england you never think you're going to play for england all you were trying to do if you played essex under 15s you were trying to play the next year or essex under 19s you used to have a look at what ramps was doing what athers was doing if athers got a hundred you wanted to get a hundred, so it was more sort of the peer pressure of what they were doing than any master plan of becoming an England player. But it's nice, you're right. Memories now with Ath in that dress in in the com box. Uh, Bumble, you know, used to be our coach. Things like that will, you know, they stay with you forever. It's curious this thing about. Uh childhood bowlers becoming batsmen and vice versa and it seems quite common when you look at professional cricketers you know Kevin Peterson springs to mind or Kyle Jamison was a batsman before he got turned into a fast bowler it seems like cricketers can do it at a young enough age you, you never see anybody doing it as an adult if you're a specialist batsman or bowler then you're never able to change basically but it's interesting how many really good batsmen start as bowlers or vice versa I'm, I'm curious if you have any thoughts about how that takes place or how that's possible well i think first of all more than how it's possible it's it's a real lesson out there for any system or coaching uh, person that you know you're right kevin peterson we played against him on that england tour and he was 18 19 whatever he was and he was coming in at number nine and bowling off spin and then four years later he's batting number five for england and smashing australia around in the ashes so there's a real lesson there of don't pigeonhole someone they can change they can surprise you um, but also for an individual try as a youngster i would say to any young boy or girl try and keep as many strings to your bow as you can don't just say i'll go up to a boy and say what do you do and if I, i'd get worried if they say i'll just bat well make sure you do bowl make sure you wicket keep make sure you do your fielding because you never know in three or four years time your other string to your bow might take off why does it happen well in my case it was it's in the blood you know cricket was in the blood so if you didn't do one thing and my brothers were still playing and my sister was around etc if you didn't bowl then you didn't go down the cricket school so i had to go down the cricket school so i had to work on my batting so i think there's a there's a family connection as well for me and I, you look at the england side there was a game a few years ago the ashes game where you had you know, Bairstow with the family connection, Broad with the family connection, Marsh with the family connection. It, you know, it can't be coincidence that if if your dad played, your mum was involved, it does get passed through. It's in the system, basically. So the batting stuff works. The, the transition uh, is uh, sufficiently successful to get you in the England team by the age of 22. I mean, you finish your natural sciences degree up at Durham and, and before you know it, you're on a plane to 
the West Indies and you're making your debut against that great West Indian side at Sabina Park and play and a series that England fans remember fondly as a as sort of a, a time that they, they you know you nearly you nearly did it you nearly were the first team to knock off the Windies for more than a generation by that stage but it, I guess first of all what are your memories of or your, your strongest memories of walking out to play for England at Sabina Park as a relatively young man and then the challenge of them being left out after that tour and, and in the wilderness essentially for three years as far as international cricket is concerned uh, with the critique being you're just a little bit too intense a little bit too full on <laughs> yeah I mean first of all the memories are the remarkable shock um, you know I was literally like you say at Durham University playing against York University and Exeter and mm. Loughborough and then I'm sat playing for Essex and I'm at Leicester in a hotel and Gucci taps me on the shoulder and says oh Nas we've you know, will you come to the Caribbean with us? And I'm like, you know, I get on really well with you, Gray, but I don't really want to go on the holiday to the Caribbean. He's like, no, you're coming to play against the West Indies. And I was like, oh, that West Indies side that keep beating you 5-0, great. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. So you then turn up and there's all these young guns. You know, they've left out my childhood hero, um, David Gower, um, to pick these young guns, Stuart and Hussein and all the Rob Bailey and various mm. other people. Um, and, you know, there's questions in Parliament about why isn't Gower going or whatever. So you're feeling a bit, a little bit stressed by the time you get out mm. there. Uh, me and Alec were rooming in Jamaica. Gucci rang us up or talked to us and said, you're both making your debut tomorrow. You couldn't have two more. Again, polar opposite characters of me and Stewie. Meticulous Stewie with all this planning and everything. And I was all over the place. Turned up the next day. And, you know, my memories were four years earlier... Patrick Patterson had just um, had hit Gatting, if you remember, right on the beak. And with my beak, you know, Patrick Patterson was still playing for the West <laughs> Indies. I was thinking, oh, my gosh, I better get a grill on or something. I didn't have a grill at that stage. Um, and my first ball was from... Uh, in fact, before that, I went out, like you do, visualise the day before. And the, most, the thing I feared the most was the pitch at Sabina Park was like glass it was like you could see your reflection i've never seen anything like it in my life it wasn't like the durham university race course ground let's mm. put it that way and my biggest fear was like it was like an ice skating ring and whether to wear you know tackies or trainers or spikes i like batted in trainers but the spikes wouldn't go into the pitch but i knew if i got run out graham gooch would never pick me again if i batted in trainers so um, that was my biggest decision. And then standing there, I got out, got out there, and Patrick Patterson was running in. And it was all, you know, it's Viv Richards was batting for the... Before that, you was short leg and Gordon Greenwich and Desmond Haynes would come out. And then Viv would come out with his floppy cap against Devon Malcolm. And it was like a surreal... These are the people I've been watching for the last 10 years. And I'm now at short leg to Viv Richards. And, and then... Patterson bowled, he bounced me obviously, um, and I, I clipped one off my hip. And I remember thinking, because the pitch was so good, I remember thinking, this is not as hard as I thought it was going to be actually. <laughs> um, and and then Ian Bishop nicked me off for 13 and I thought, ah, it, it, it is pretty tough. But because the pitch was so good, as a batsman, you thought, do you know what, I can do this. So you've got that moment of thinking you can do it, but then you're, you're out of the side for three years after that. How do you manage that period in your life? How do you come to terms with it or, or set yourself up for what you want to do next? 
It wasn't that. I mean, it was a broken. I broke my wrist in in wherever uh, Guyana playing tennis, um, and I was out for a long time. I had to have it pinned, so I was out for the whole of next summer. And two things: one, um, you know, I, it didn't hit me that hard because it was almost a bolt from the blue anyway, getting in the side. So it was like it wasn't something I'd been dreaming of or like I'd planned my whole life. So it was, it was something that was there, and then it wasn't there. But then the next summer, it was some very flat pitches against India, I think. And Graham Gooch got 333 and it was like a run fest. And that's when it hit you. I think it was an Ashes tour after that. I can't I can't play. I can't bat. I can't make use of these friendly batting conditions to get on. You know, your next box you want to tick after playing against Viv Richards and all this is go out and play against, you know, Border and whoever was around at that stage. So... Um, it, it, that's when it hit me hard at the end of that summer when not only had I missed out on the run fest and playing against India, but also I had to go to the back of the queue and try and get back in. And that's when a few disciplinary, I was, I was fiery back then, you know, I was more fiery than I am now. And there's, <laughs> I was a few disciplinary issues with Mark War and Mark Eilot and some of the bowlers at Essex where I was sort of fighting the system a bit. Um, and it and and you know got disciplined a couple of times, and I was right at the back of the queue and had to work my way back up. Do you recognise that man when you look back at that young man, that that angrier, more hot-headed type? It seems <laughs> from an outside perspective antithetical to you as you are now. You, you're you're a model of level-headedness in your public appearance, but do you <laughs> still feel a connection to that man? Yeah, absolutely, uh, absolutely, and I, it, it is what it you know what it is i was what i was it wasn't put on i was fiery i used to sit there you know i was a kit demolisher i was a thrower of my bat i was outspoken it got me in trouble if i didn't think our bowlers at essex were bowling their yorkers i remember coming off there was a lad murphy at surrey who used to nail his yorkers and he bowled to us and nailed his yorkers and i came off and i'd I said, why can't our bowlers get those Yorkers right? And Gucci tapped me on the shoulder. That would be one game you're missing. You won't slag off your bowlers in front of the team. So uh, I remember sitting there having thrown my gear. And I used to watch Graham Gooch come out. He used to get out LBW Alderman or LBW Norman Cowans or someone. And he used to take his kit off, take his gloves off, put his back quietly in the corner, go to his mail. You know, Essex at Chelmsford, he used to have his mail in the corner as England captain. Hundreds of letters for autographs, etc., and he used to just sit there signing away his autographs. Whether he got 100 or whether he got naught, whether he got a good decision or a bad decision, Gucci was so level-headed. And I used to look at him thinking, how can you not be a kit thrower, Gray? You know, I was fiery. It was, you know, it, it maybe came from my dad. It may be every innings is important. Going back to my youth, there was no game that wasn't important. Um it wasn't put on, and, and now I, you know, now you got kids, and now you see the bigger picture. Um, now it's up to someone else. It's someone else's turn, but I wouldn't change it. That is for certain. That's what made me the cricketer I was. Hopefully, when you come back to the England side in 1993, it's in the middle of the worn May maelstrom, I suppose. When when it's a, a very sort of challenging time for England cricket as Australia really sort of 
take hold of uh, that bilateral contest for the fourth time in a row, whatever it was by that stage. And we're really in a groove against England and as obviously Warren um, coming uh, over here for the first time and all the rest. Uh, you get an opportunity there, you make runs the first time around, but then you're off the picture again and you're back um, out of the England side for a, for a few more years. But how important was it getting that opportunity to play against Shane Warne uh, then uh, to feel more comfortable the next time you've come up against him that he that he was uh, not not a, that, that he was human essentially that he wasn't just sort of some mythical figure that that would routinely knock over England batsmen. Well, you know, after the ball at Old Trafford, I'm afraid he will always be that mystical, um, mythical fi- figure. Both of those, actually, you know. He was unbelievable. And uh, people always ask me now, you know, do you wish you played in the present era? Or, And I'm like, no way. I am so pleased I played in that era. A, against some of the greatest bowlers, not, not just the Australian side, but West Indies with Ambrose and Walsh and Donald and Pollock and, you know, and Teeny, etc. Going back, uh, Mushy, Wazim, Wakai, the list goes on. But playing against that Australian side as well, uh, playing against McGrath, playing against Warm, playing against Steve War, Mark War, Border, Taylor, you know, geez, the list, Gilchrist, it, the list goes on, um, Hayden Langer after that. So I, I am really thrilled that I, I played again. I didn't play against the West Indies side at their best. For me, and I don't want to go back, you guys are better historians of the game than me. I don't want to go back to the Invincibles and all that. On what I saw, the two greatest sides were the West Indies side that I grew up watching, the, the, the Viv Richards, Clive Lloyd sides, and that Australian side. Um, and I was so thrilled I played against that Australian side. And you're right, once you play against Shane, you know that you can play against him. He's still arguably the greatest bowler of all, all time. And he will be in your face from ball one to the last ball. But if you do well against him, he'll be the first bloke to come up to you at the end of play and shake your hand and say, well done. And you get back three years later. So the start of the 96 summer, it's against India. You're backed into bat number three, which feels like a big sort of turning point. You're given the opportunity in that first test match. You go on and make a century. It's the first of 500s in the space of 13 months. So seven tests for little reward and then 13 months of just, you know, the, the most prolific uh, batting of your career statistically. We see that a lot for players, don't we? You know, they, they get a chance, we get a couple of opportunities, they, they get left out of the side and they, I guess, come to terms with their technique. Would that be a reasonable critique of the, the, the journey you were on, um, sort of realising what was going to work for you at the top level? Yeah, well, two things I'll say about that is one, never underestimate or undervalue luck in your career, I have to say. Um, and I got asked the other day, I did something in the paper and they said, you know, and there's a f- bit of footage going around now, uh, dodgy decisions, etc. And, you know, someone said, <laughs> oh, you've got a few dodgy decisions in your time. You, you know, wouldn't you have had better stats with DRS? And I'd say, yeah, OK, th- maybe. But you don't forget the ones you got away with as well. And that mm. comeback game when I batted at three against India, I nicked one off the glove down the leg side to Javigal Srinath. And I think it was Daryl Hare gave me not out. And I had gloved it. I apologise to everyone out there. I wasn't a walker. Um, And if I'd been given out then and got a few more test matches with no runs, I may not have had an international career after that. So the bit of luck you get, get 100. And then the second point I make is once you get that first 100, then you it just buys you time. You know you're going to play five test matches. You know you feel like an international cricketer. 
you know, a couple of the young lads I spoke to this winter, the likes of Sibley, whatever, you walk back into that dressing room and you know your teammates feel that you're an international cricketer. And that is the major thing that when your teammates think, Nasser, you know, you got a hundred, you're 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 a good player, then it just relaxes you so much. The next time you go out, you're not under pressure. And it's the biggest change from that era, the nineties and the start of the two thousands, before central contracts, is that there was so much chopping and changing. You were always under pressure, worried about your place. To at least now, the last decade or so you do know you're going to be given a fair crack and you can just go out and express yourself and not have the axe sort of hanging over you. You mentioned David Lloyd earlier and he was the one who who backed you as your coach to go out and bat first drop. Was that a significant moment for you as well um, to to get have that support? I, I, absolutely. I I didn't think I was a number 3 actually. I I batted in the middle order with Essex having you know, Graham Gooch and Brian Hardy and Mark War or Alan Boyle, whoever our overseas player was, Kenny McEwen, whoever. I was coming in at five or whatever, often for Essex and occasionally for England. I would be up at four or something like that. But then suddenly Bumble rang me and said, you're going to be batting three. I was like, oh, OK, all right, fine. They were looking for a number three. Um, but I enjoyed it because it was actually it helped me because I was a very nervous cricketer, very fear of failure, nervous cricketer that the sooner I got in the worst bit of my day uh, the worst bit of my career I have to be honest is wait was waiting to bat I was hated waiting to bat once you're out there it's absolutely fine so um, it helped me getting out at three you know especially after Athers or Butch or whoever was opening the batting you're in fairly quickly um, and you got out there and I quite I quite enjoyed it I have to be honest um, I have to say that um, and I quite enjoyed having Bumble as our as our coach, um, Bumble was a fantastic coach. As loyal as they get, David Lloyd, whether it be the Zimbabwe, we murdered them. All he was doing was protecting us. You know, the, the rants he would have in the dressing room with us, and then he would go out in front of the media and back his team to the absolute hill. We loved having Bumble as our coach, and we, you know, I love having Bumble around. At the moment, in the commentary box, he, uh, uh, he, what you see is what you get with David Lloyd. The innings that, that, that most people reflect on when thinking about your golden run that really made you a mainstay of the England side is the, the double turn against Australia to start the 1997 Ashes series, which we remember well, of course, knocking over Australia on that first morning for 118. But perhaps what's less well known is when you walk out at 16 for two uh, and, and the game's sort of in the balance and press fast forward 24 hours and it's very much England's game. I think it's I think it's still the record, isn't it, for um, the most amount of boundaries percentage into a into a double ton, one hundred and fifty two runs in fours. Yeah, I don't like I don't like talk don't <laughs> like talking about that. Most boundaries by an Englishman <laughs> in an Ashes innings. Don't like mentioning that at all. Well, well, now, well, now, uh, now that we have, I mean, yeah, Winston was, said you were were touched by magic <laughs> on those couple of days uh, at Birmingham. I mean, I want to come back to that warm thing though. So and technique really. So you know, left out, brought back, left out, brought back, and so on. As you know. You get to 97, you're set, you're in, you're playing good cricket, then you dismantle Warren. Um, on the technical side of things, how did you sort of come to terms with the player that you were in a way that could be so prolific on, on such a big stage? Uh, well, I mean, first of all, the night the night before, because I hadn't seen Warden that much, I literally, we were at the Swallow Hotel in Birmingham, I literally ordered a chicken, a curry takeaway, uh, chicken tikka masala, chicken biryani, in my room from the local takeaway curry house, put video of Warren on 
and literally watched a video. The old days, it was just a VHS, none of this stuff now the players have on their iPad or whatever, and just sat there watching delivery of delivery after Shane Warne. Mainly, not the wickets, because obviously you don't want negative thoughts. You had to have a look at the wickets, but the odd person who had played him well, etc., um, and then the next the next week was just surreal, to be honest. I mean, England A were on the up, mm-hmm. if you remember. They'd beaten them three nil in the white ball in the white ball series with um, bless him Ben Holyoke um, bursting on the scene. So we felt we were on the up, and then Goffey and Caddy bowled them out on that sweaty, hot, humid day when it swung around. And then we were right; it was a low-scoring game. And then me and Thorpey got together and I have to be honest and very very rarely do I say this about myself but it was the only day the only innings that I felt like what it must be like to be Sachin Tendulkar or Brian Lara or Virat Kohli or whoever that they talk about being in the zone they talk about seeing it like a football not hearing Warren sledges or McGrath sledges Steve War at Gully it was just like everything clicked and everything was hit in the middle of the bat and everything that you'd worked for all your career um, about your timings of your movement and not falling over the crease and not wor- worrying about Warren's drift and trying to flick him through mid-wicket. That was the danger shot. You never thought about all those things. It was an absolute clear-headed innings that... I just never repeated, you know, before or after. And to do it with arguably one of my best friends in the game, in Graham Thorpe at the other end, made it doubly special. And then to go on and win the test was like the perfect week for me. It was just, it it, it was, I never batted like that. However many times I try to repeat it and have the same curry takeaway and the same mental sort of checklist you, you, I never played like that again, but I, I'm pleased I did it against that Australian side in a in a sort of winning test match. I've had this theory for a long time that a lot of players maybe get that one day. They they have one day in their career where they're just on and, and where they, they transcend their normal level. Do you recognise that when you see it in another player, when you see a batsman out there having one of those days, does it give you a little thrill of recognition to say he's, he's having he or she's having that moment that I had? I, not so much. I never try and relate things to me, but I, I see it. I, in, in fact, and throughout my career and even throughout my captaincy, actually, I found it very difficult to worry about, relate, compare with people who are just at a different level. So, for example, there was no point in me trying to worry about what's in my career, what Sachin was doing or whatever. This was just a godlike figure that did their own thing. So... I might look at how Thorpey or whatever, you know, what was he doing in and around the dressing room that when it was 20 for two and we pushed Graham Thorpe out the door, why was he that sort of streetwise fighter that, you know, we could all rely on? So I would look at him and when he was having that real special day, um, the double hundred he got up in, where was it, Christchurch or whatever, you would think, yeah, Thorpey's having one of those days. What's he done? Why, you know, you could relate to that as opposed to what Sachin was doing, hun- churning out 100 after 100. And same with my captaincy. In my era, everyone used to bang on about the Aussies. What are the Aussies? Even our, even our board, you know, and the media were like, what were Aussies doing? Why, you know, let's copy their system, copy their state system, everything. And I was like, well, they have Warren, they have McGrath, they have Gilchrist, they have War, they have War, they have Ponting. 
what is Stephen Fleming in New Zealand doing? I used to look at them and think, why are they punching above? I know it's the biggest cliche ever nowadays, you know, New Zealand always punch above their weight, but they do. And they have a system of many X amount of professional cricketers and they have the same side every time and they have this great captain in Stephen Fleming. So I always used to relate to... Um, what what captains and players were doing Watch it, and going back to your question when they did something special when Fleming against Australia we played a series against Australia before them and to Damien Martin for example I used to set a field where not to bowl to Marto's strength where he played that back foot punch outside off stump don't bowl there, bowl very straight to him and that didn't work. He just waited until our bowlers erred and he'd smash it through gully for four. And then I watched the next series and Stephen Fleming got his bowlers to bowl exactly where Damien Martin wanted but put four gullies in and Marto would hit a few there and then get it get caught in that gully. And I'd like, ah, that's what I should have done. So I used to try and learn from people I could relate to both as a batsman and as a captain. In terms of, I guess, laying the foundation for that captaincy, that the next little period of your career becomes known for you know, tough innings in, in often England defeats, so the 100 at Antigua. Um, the one at Lords when following on against South Africa at the start of that bombastic series, which we all sort of look back on uh, a generation later, is one of the, the greatest of, of the modern era. But um, at, at Lords, the first time you made a century there, how special was it to, um, to do so against Donald and co? And I mean, were your family there? I mean, I know people when they talk of their first Lords 100 as being a fairly uh, seminal moment in their career. Well, my dad definitely wouldn't have been there because I, I used to, you know, try and get tickets left, right and centre. But my, my dad was such a nervous watcher and I can relate to that now with my boy playing cricket it's just so nerve-wracking so i used to leave tickets for him and i used to like text him and go did you watch and he was like oh no i didn't come i was down the cricket school following it on cfax or teletech <laughs> i mean could you think of anything worse than following your son's innings on cfax where he has to click over from minute to minute or whatever from 8 to 10 to 12 or run out 13 <laughs> or whatever it used to be um so he wouldn't come but i, I remember lord's there was a change in mindset for me and the team with Lords. We used to, hate is a strong word, but we used to find it a difficult place to play with the rules and regulations. It was like the Augusta National of the cricketing world. They did things their way and you better abide by their rules or they, they wouldn't change them. You know, if I'd walk down through the long room on a Wednesday to go and look at the pitch for the toss and it was closed, it wouldn't be like, oh, Mr. Hussein, your England captain will open that door for you. It was like, sorry, I don't care who you are. You go around the long way and you go and look at the pitch by going down that entrance down the side there. We're not opening that door for you. And it, we used to fight it a bit. And then sort of Duncan came along and Duncan would like take his hat off walking through the long room and look at all the history and the memorabilia. And we would sort of go, oh, OK, let, let's try and appreciate this place a little bit more. And that for me and that hundred um, for me was a sort of change in mindset. We have to appreciate this place. It does things its own way. And the sooner we buy into that, the better. And also the pitch, it changed a bit. In, in it, there was an era with the ridge and it was quite a spicy, got up and down. And then they changed the way. I think they got that sort of hover cover on it and leveled it out and it became a better. And So for as a batsman, um, if you look after that, the, you look at that honours board, with the exception of Gooch, after that, there was Stuart, myself, Vaughan, Strauss, so many batters, 
with hundreds at that place. So it was a you know getting your first hundred at at Lords or your first Lords hundred, and people it's another cliche, but people do say you know about that honours board. Anytime I go in there now, you do look up and there is a little bit of pride that you are on that on that board. That's there forever. And that series ends up being a classic. That's when Alan Donald bowls furiously. Uh, South Africa are up. It, it gets turned around. You end up clinching the deciding test to win the series 2-1. You fell just short of 100 in that final match as well. And to, to clinch that series against a team playing as well as South Africa were, what does that mean for you personally and for you as a team in terms of believing that, that you can pull this side together? Oh, I mean, I thought it was a great series. I, I don't know if it, in, I, I sound like in my time sort of guy, but I don't know, looking back at the footage now that's out there on social media or whatever, and the comment I made earlier about how much, I'm, how pleased I am I played in that era, that was a great era to be a cricketer. You know, there was controversy. That series, there was controversy with the umpiring. There was so many poor decisions um, that last day at Leeds when South Africa, I don't know, they needed 100 odd and we needed X amount of wickets. Um, and, you know, watching them slowly come through the gates of Headingley and being packed out by the end. There's a sort of joy and elation on Bumble's face taking us that, to that victory. Alec is our captain. <clears throat> you know, he, he was he was axed as captain a few months after that and we'd just beaten one of the great South African sides. It was full of controversy. It went one way, then the other. But like I say, I look back on it now sort of fondly that that was a good era to be a cricketer. There was always something happening on and off the field, obviously, with South African cricket. There was so much happening. Um, it was. It didn't feel like it at the time, but it was very, very sort of enjoyable to be a part of. So the door closes on Alec after the 99 World Cup, but it's after you've gone to Australia and topped the runs for England in an unsuccessful campaign, albeit, but over 400 runs against Australia down there. You finally get your chance to go there after missing out in 1991 and 94, 95. You're there in, in Australia, and then you're um, given the commission to, to be the captain uh, of the England test team and the England cricket team. I mean, um, having been the leader of so many teams as a junior, having kind of been on that path, if you like, and having been around the dressing room for, by that stage, nine years on and off, but especially the, the previous three years, did you kind of really feel as though this was a, a very good time for you personally to be given the chance to now mould a team that there were some green shoots about? Jeff mentioned the South Africa series of, of 98, and it, it did feel feel as though you did have some building blocks to work with after a pretty poor decade for English cricket. Yeah, I mean, so many things I can say about that. The first thing was um, how unlucky I felt Bumble and Stewie were. Like I say, I thought Stewie, Stewie in that in that series down mm. there, um, you know, in the South African series, we'd won. I thought Alec was a very fine captain. I thought Bumble was an excellent coach for us. We enjoyed um, having him as our coach um so i thought they were unfortunate to both lose their jobs then the sort of surreal moment when someone rings you up david graveney rings you up and says we'd like you to be our next england captain it's like really you know the boy from boy from madras who came over here and i better ring you know to ring my dad up and say you know that dad that, that lad you brought over from india is now the england cricket captain and it was like the, the emotion on his voice so mm. Um, it was a surreal moment. It, you, you don't think, like I say, growing up, you're Essex under 14s. You want to play against Essex under. You want to play for Essex under 15s against Michael Atherton again. 
you don't ever expect to get the call. Uh, I was lucky that I was watched i travel with graham gooch on a number of occasions you know i used to pick gucci i lived in hutton he lived in shemfield it's a five minute drive i used to go and pick him up and we used to go to essex games simply because i wanted to get in the essex side so i used to drive gucci around everywhere and i used to hear the conversations he was having with players with uh, ecb with groundsman uh, selections he'd be on the phone then one of my best friends in the game, Athers, is captain and I'm listening to him and how he's going. I played under Keith Fletcher, one of the great captains um, I've ever known in Keith Fletcher. Great bloke, great captain. Uh, that helped me. You know, I read Brearley, Art of Captaincy. I picked Brearley's brain. I did whatever I could do um, to try and set me up for that moment. Um, but nothing sets you up when you're walking out at Edgebaston or wherever it was, and the bloke on the tannoy says, and now leading out England is Nasser Hussein, and the Barmy Army starts singing Nasser Hussein's Barmy Army, then it's then it's real, and then it's, right, you better get on with changing this side around. And I remember Duncan saying to me, and I'd never met Duncan Fletcher, and when, he, when, when I got told it was Fletcher, I thought, okay, Keith Fletcher, great, it was Duncan Fletcher, wrong Fletcher. Mm. And I remember him saying to me, look, you know, you're not the best side in the world, but you shouldn't be officially ranked the worst side in the world. And that's exactly where we were by the end of the New Zealand series. So, so many things changed. This podcast would have to be three hours long. But the most important change, guys, was central contract. I would love to take all the credit. Duncan would love to take all the credit. The most important thing was sitting down with McLaurin, Lord McLaurin, and saying, we need central contracts. Before that, we were all county players that would occasionally go and play for England. And you'd look around, there'd be Hickey and Robin Smith and Lammy and whoever, Tuffers. And, and then after that, we were England players. That was our team that occasionally would go off and play for our counties if Fletcher let you. And that is a massive change in mindset that once you have a team and it's your team and you can work everything around that team, rest bowlers, give people a long run when they're out of neck, etc. Once you change that and you have a team and you believe in a team, then you can do everything else from there. When you told your old man that you'd been made captain, did you consider letting him know by teletext just to make it easier? <laughs> he would probably have gone to teletext to see that I hadn't been drinking or winding him up. He would have great. What would it have been there? 401 or three, something like that. 341. I still, I'm so sad. I still remember the numbers, how we used to try and find out how Essex was getting on when there was an Eng England game going. <laughs> he would have probably gone to that to see our Nasser Hussain named England captain. And his worst thing he would have done would be then go to all the papers to see the reaction, you know, and the good and bad. And then he would have been, you know, um, hitting walls at the Ilford Cricket School in that little room that he had when someone used to, to slag me off or criticise my captaincy after that. That great relationship with, with Duncan Fletcher at the top of England cricket, which kind of uh, is, uh, is, as you say, uh, essentially starting when you become captain, the two of you are in those jobs, those senior positions. Uh, you go to South Africa the winter of 99, 2000 and... Um, lose there but again like there's this idea that there's some there's something happening in England cricket like that you're not uncompetitive the, there's the, the the defiant century you make on Boxing Day at Durban which goes for I don't know 
Did you bat for two full days? A week. Uh, yeah, it feels like you bat. I, I seem to recall you batting for an extremely long time. It was a broadcast back to Australia, that series. It was when we were first getting series. Sorry about that. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, a player like Michael Vaughan makes his debut uh, on, on that series. And even though you don't win, there's that start of something. Of course, you win the, the Centurion Test, but probably the, the less said about that, the better due to the circumstances with, with Cronier and, and so forth. But... Um, and you've got you know Andy Caddick and, and Darren Goff bowling for you and, and, and bowling outsides as they did a lot against the West Indies in 2000. And I wanted to touch on that series because up until 2000, the four years before that, you're making all these runs. You've made England captain, consistent century maker, and you don't make runs against the Windies, but you win anyway. And there's comments from you at the time saying that um, you kind of didn't mind, although that might have been a front, I'm not sure. But what mattered most to you is that the team were making progress and it was um, taking so much, was sapping so much of your mental reserves to be captain that it was hard to be as diligent, perhaps. I don't know if that's the right descriptor, but it was hard to give as much to your batting as you would have before you had the job. Just wanted to ask about that balance. When you were captain, how did you find a way of still being effective as a player, as you were in Durban, uh, whilst uh, leading a side which still had a lot of different moving parts? Uh, well, I remember when I got the captaincy after the you know, ringing my dad, I reckon an hour later, Keith Fletcher, who I had the utmost respect for, um, as a person and as I could say like a captain he rang me up and he said well done he said the one bit of advice I'd give you is make sure you're getting runs make sure you're doing in the team what you're supposed to be doing because that makes every captaincy decision so much easier mm. and I sort of that stood by me for a long time because when you're getting runs when you're doing well it is so much easier to go up to someone else and ask them to do something or have a go at someone for not doing something because you know if you're not doing well, something in the back of their head is thinking, well, any danger of you getting a few, Skip? It's all well and good, um, you know, you trying to be the captain that you are, but you get some runs as well. And also it hurts you. I don't care all the bravado I would have come out with then, about, oh, yeah, the captaincy and we're winning games. That's rubbish. It hurt. Every innings for me was important. I was a batsman. Mm. You know, that's my first job. So um, it does hurt you and it does worry you and it does drag you down. And if you look at various England captains, even though in the end, because I was an OK player, it, you know, I averaged 37. I averaged 37 as a captain, non-captain. I was one of the few that actually end up about the same. I think that was because of the type of player I was. I was an okay player. You look at the great players, you know, and you give them the captaincy, I think that worries me a little bit. It might wear them down, but I was okay and it, my stats were okay. But the graph usually follows the same pattern for every England captain. In the first, when you get it, like I say, that euphoria and that wanting to do well and that pride and also a little bit there is no fear of failure there is no you're not going to be dropped you're England captain you're going to play for a year just go out and play and you want to lead by example and lead from the front so there's that up curve of form and you do well then when you start losing games and you start feeling the as you do as an England captain of that era you do lose games I'm afraid we did we weren't great we were playing against some great sides you then, and the media and the press and idiots like me that are out there now criticising everything and Hussein must go. Um, I remember Ian Smith, who I get on brilliantly with now. <laughs> um, I remember Ian Smith, I think it was in, must have been a New Zealand series, that New Zealand series that we ended up. He, he said something like, it was a commentary of the TV was on. He said, oh, yeah, yeah, 
England, I think England are on upward curve, but I think they need to change their captain. I was like, really, Smithy? I mean, <laughs> I've only been in the job a few months sort of thing. So it gets you down, it wears you down, and however much Duncan, Duncan would go on in the press conference and people used to ask, you know, Hussein not getting any runs, and I remember Duncan saying, well, NASA's our all-rounder. Um, you know, he's like an all-rounder, batting and bowling, captaincy and batting. His captaincy is brilliant. He, he, you know, don't worry about his batting. And, and I was like, good spin on that, Dunk. <laughs> really good spin on it. But I, I know, and you know, I need to get some runs. So in the end, it does wear you down. And you have to make sure that you look after, find some time to look after your own game. You mentioned that upward curve, and there are those. Uh, th- there are moments of, of advancement around that 2000, 2001 era where you know you have the the match, the famous game in Karachi, where you're batting out the end of the Test match in the dark. You go to Sri Lanka and win against Murali at his peak, which was probably unexpected, you know, given the way that he was dismantling sides. And and then even the two thousand and one Ashes, where you lose four one to Australia, but there are moments of the, like Mark Butcher's ton that, that sets up the win at Headingley where there are good signs for this team. You're sort of building belief, I guess, in your own side. Is that Was that something you could gradually build and keep accumulating or was it was it something that was slippery, that was hard to hold on to, that you might have one day and then have it vanish the next? Uh, really good question, actually. Yeah, I'd say... I'd say it's still hard to hold on to. You know, you've been very kind about 2001 and the Ashes and not mentioning Brisbane at any stage in that question. Um, Yeah, it it was very hard to hold on to because it was a little bit like, you know, two steps forward, one step back. Because of where we'd come from, there there was no magical um, fix to this. We were a side that had been used to losing, had a lot of mental scarring and a mental baggage. There were people that wanted wholesale changes and I wanted to pick on character. I remember in a selection meeting, we used to have so many, my first selection meeting as an England captain, we used to sit around the table and everyone, not everyone, a lot of people went on about what people couldn't do. You know, Andy Caddick can't, doesn't bowl well in the first innings. You know, Graham Thorpe, you know, what else does he do apart from get runs? Well, Graham averages 42, that'll do for me. You know what I mean? And when, when we're 20 for two, the one lad I want to push out the door is little Graham Thorpe, our street fighter. I don't, I don't care that he doesn't do throwdowns with other people or he's very quiet and he sits in the corner and he doesn't talk. At 20 for two, we want Graham Thorpe out there. So there were some fundamentals that I want to select now on character. We want to select on character. I don't care how many runs he's got on a Monday at whoever, Derby or whatever. How many runs has he got when it's really tough? And... You know, Triscothic suddenly gets a mention, Vaughan suddenly gets a mention, Flintoff, Harmison, Jones, Simon Jones. You know, Duncan, I have to give Duncan so much credit in this. I was worrying about the day-in, day-out decision-making on the field. Duncan, beside, behind the scenes, was looking at the bigger picture on central contracts, resting, picking bowlers with pace, getting that 2005 attack together behind the scenes with Flintoff, Harmison, Jones, Hoggard, etc. Getting tough cricketers, uh, playing of spin. You mentioned India, uh, Pakistan, Sri Lanka. We went and played spin because of Duncan's coaching. We had coaches that told us what we weren't, what we were doing wrong. 
We've never had in English cricket a coach and how do you correct that with the forward press, with the change in grip? When were you timing your movements, etc.? Um, so we had this coach who was now the master plan. Never And Duncan, stubborn man, really stubborn, never wavered from his beliefs at what you need to be an international cricketer. Um, so it ended up being a pretty good combination of Fletcher off the field, sort of driving us forward, and me with my fiery temper and won't wouldn't settle for just mediocrity and what we had done in the past on the field i guess i might be overplaying it but we went from a side that we're used to losing to a side that actually was difficult to beat as in we weren't winning a hundred we weren't winning we won four three or four series in a row but we were we were a side that were now competing and playing like we should do. You know, going back to that Fletcher comment, we weren't the best side in the world, um, but we weren't the worst side in the world. Yeah, and the, and the generational change you mentioned, the, the fast bowling group there that becomes so influential in, in 2005. But at the top of the list, you got, you know, Michael Vaughan uh, becomes a, a serious opener. Um, you know, the, 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 the 600 run series against India in 2002. Um, you get to Australia. Like, I mean, I don't want to um, dwell on the Brisbane things. It feels as though um, <laughs> that just comes up all the time and, and, uh, and sort of it's an answer that we all know of and we're not that interested in, frankly, the, the answers that people <laughs> talk about all the time on, on this podcast. We want to talk about other, other matters. And um, it feels really, though, what I want to observe is, or ask you to observe rather, is the you, you, you can see the ashes in 11 days and that must be just horrific as captain you know you leave Perth beaten in three days I think beaten by an innings if memory serves me correctly and it's and it's a, and it's sort of a a brutal end to that forward momentum so it seems but then you move to Melbourne nearly pinch a test match and then you win at Sydney I mean it kind of, kind of goes back to Jess question before about the stop start momentum if you like but being able to see that there was sort of light at the end of the tunnel because you had these uh, players coming through who were showing their credentials as match winners but they're still was sort of perhaps a, you know, a couple of pieces to put together in the puzzle and maybe that mental fragility at the start of the series where you were blown out of the water. Ah, yeah, listen, I, if you just looked at that series, if we replay it now, you would just say, well, that there is no um, forward movement advancement from the England side. It was the same sort of England side that would lose. In fact, 4-1 was what we used to do. We used to lose four and then when the Aussies were all out mm. on the, uh, having a few beers, they'd lose the last one and some of us would save our jobs, basically. And you could... I, I wouldn't argue with anyone. We lost... I think I, I think that's a record for me. A few of my Sky commentators and bosses still wind me up about it, saying, yeah, 11, <laughs> lost the Ashes in 11 days. You know, it's quite remarkable, really. If you think of the build-up to an Ashes series, 11 days of cricket later, it's gone. And that's the disappointment, really, is that you do all the build-up, you set up your side, and 11 days into the series, that's it. It's gone. You can't You can't even compete. The, you know, whatever happens from now is just trying to, trying to fill in the gaps, really. So, but the only other thing I'd say to that is we, we had to try and get rid, even in that side, and I think Michael Vaughan mentioned it in 2005. One of the reasons they won in 2005 was that they had a side without mental scarring and mental baggage. So that when they went 1-0 down at Lords, it wasn't like, here we go again. And I remember in that 2001 series, when we were up against it, when we were getting hammered, there was the odd comment when batsmen got out or when Australia were 400 for two, 
Why does this always happen to us? And I could sense that within that side, there was still not sense. I knew there was still mental. If you keep getting out to Shane Warne, if you keep getting hammered by Aidan and Langer and Ponting, you keep bowling a back of a length ball to Ponting that, that frightens certain club uh, county cricketers and Ponting is pulling that ball for six over mid-wicket and you look at your bowler and he's in his eyes and he's looking at you and saying, what do I do now, Skip? And you go, well, that's your job, what you do now. That's what you're in the England side to work out what you do now. So that is your mental scarring and baggage that we need to somehow filter out of this side. But within all that, there were individuals, and I'll give you Vaughan as a classic example. There were individuals that if you play in a certain way and if you have flair and you have style and you say, I'm going to take you on and I've got no mental baggage and scarring, these guys can you can play against these guys and you, know, you can get runs and you can and even Sydney if you do the basics well and get a hundred Mark Butcher and bowl them out Andy Caddick when it's getting up and down they have a bit of fragility if you put them under pressure as we saw in 2005 these are not superhuman cricketers you know it made me laugh in 2005 that the same comments we were making in previous years certain Australian cricketers were walking into their dressing room going, why aren't we bowling like they are bowling, etc. You know, they were they were um, falling apart. That mental toughness that we'd heard about from the Australian cricketer, that when you actually put them under pressure, any team can crumble. So um, it, 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 going back to your question, we were still the same England side in 2001, but there were one or two individuals, one or two green shoots that were being set up for 2005. Ness, the end of your test captaincy kind of, it doesn't happen abruptly because obviously you're towards the end of your career anyway. The commission is is withdrawn, if you like, after the 2003 series at home. Um, But you are made a Wisdom Cricketer of the Year that year, which I think is interesting kind of a little side note to all this, is that the year you made Cricketer of the Year or one of the five, um, it's essentially for your leadership, reading back through the, the essay that Shil Berry wrote um, uh, when you were gonged is that he, he talks about the way you sort of transform the team. He credits you as being, um, I think he called you the grittiest captain since Jardine or something like that. It was quite complimentary piece about your your leadership. Um, on a purely selfish level, did you think when you were kind of gesturing towards the end of your career, bloody hell, I, I, I've got us to this point. I'm, I'm not going to be playing test cricket anymore, but uh, gee, if I had it been a couple of years younger, I, I might have been or a few years younger, I might have been part of a, a fairly sort of special team which ended up uh, sort of reaching its peak in 2005. No, not not at all. Not for one second because only I knew where I was then. I was done. I was completely and utterly brain scrambled, completely gone, I have to be honest. Mentally, the, the, it dragged me down. The, the, the job I'd loved the most... And I still, it was the best job I ever had, being England cricket captain. Walking onto a cricket field and someone announces, now leading out England is Nasser Hussein. And and it, it hits you when the time that you're not and that they say it's Michael Vaughan and the Barmy Army is singing Michael Vaughan's Barmy Army or whatever. It hits you then. You're no longer yeah. England cricket captain. The best job in the world, but it was also, I was completely and utterly scrambled mentally it's taken its toll and if i had carried on either as a captain or a player that mental baggage and scarring that i've spoken about 
There is no way on this planet that we would have won that 2005 Ashes series because it needed needed someone like Michael. It needed someone to... I had been in the players' faces having a go at them, telling them to be better. What it needed then was someone to tell them, go out, enjoy yourself. Go out, express yourself. Go out, have some fun. Don't be fearful of this Australian side. And that was Michael for you. What was he described as a iron fist in a velvet glove or whatever? That was Vaughan summed up back then. He was telling his team to go and express themselves. There was no baggage or scarring. And I couldn't do that. You know, I was sitting in the com box or at home enjoying every moment of it. Um, but that, that win in 2005 was because of one brilliant captain and 11 or 12 outstanding cricketers uh, it was the series you know the the best series arguably the best series of all time so uh, you know um, and they should take the credit for that the actual description from shieldberry was that you were the most ardent england captain since jardine does that do you, do you feel validated by that description does that tally with your perception of yourself well i've got I've got a dictionary back here. I'm going to have to look up Ardent. Shield always used these words that I never understood, to be honest. So, um, I, I, it, it, listen, it, means, it I, means passionate, I suppose. It means uh, yeah, fully investing I, yourself in, in the task at hand. I, um, I was asked this, actually, about myself and captaincy. I did a, we did this captain's log thing on um, Sky, and, you know, all I was... All I was ever worried about at the end of my career, either as a player or as a captain, was were you, not whether I was ardent, not whether I was gritty, not whether I was passionate. Was I the best I could have been as captain or as a player? That's all that ever mattered to me. That, that would make retirement a lot easier if you know you did your absolute best. And all I can say to make my days easier now, looking back, is that I was that that. That is all I... What I did with my captaincy for England was what I could have done. And that's all I guess I could ask and the team could ask and people that pay their good money to turn up and watch a side that was misfiring and underperforming. That's all they could ask. So I did my best. I did the best I could with the team I had. And I love that team. In fact, now I look back and I speak to Butch and I speak to Goff and Ath, Ath and Thorpey and there are so many fond memories of that era, even though we lost a lot, um, that there is still a special bond with that team, both as a player and as a captain. Now, in terms of the legacy of your leadership, um, just thinking about what it would have done for a lot of young British Asians growing up and seeing a British Asian uh, be captain of the team and sort of giving that belief of, of it being possible for them, having had no one in that role like quite like you before. Um, did you sort of see it that way when you were leading the side and if not have you been subsequently post-career been able to appreciate perhaps just how important that was for for younger people coming up seeing you lead the England team a, a bloke called Nasser Hussain captaining the England cricket team I, I didn't see it like that too much because you know y your job is to try and make England win you don't it's such a full-time job that you don't you don't look too much you understand it of course you do I'm not stupid wasn't naive um occasionally got myself into trouble i i not into trouble i i was playing we were playing a test at pakistan and 
you know, I think a couple of lads came behind the net there at Old Trafford and said, oh, whack. and they were only jesting. It was good banter, you know, whack, oh, wazim are going to get you tomorrow. They're going to kill you tomorrow. And I did a piece in the Sunday Telegraph saying from where I was brought up, all my childhood heroes were England, English. And I didn't want to get into the Tebbit test and all mm. this stuff. But, you know, um, I wanted to make sure that all these young second, third generation British Asians wanted to play for England, wanted to, that was could be their future. You know, your dad might support India or Pakistan or whatever, but, you know, could you get behind the England team? There's a massive... Um, new, we see it every time there's an India-Pakistan World Cup game, you know, in England, the the crowds, and there's such love for the game here. I just wanted all those little ones like me as a six-year-old coming from India to to want to play for England or whatever. Um, and, you know, it, I think Imran came back with me with a quite a very good article, actually, about, you know, it was all right for you, Nas, with a whitish skin and English private school, etc. <coughs> it was a fairly good comeback as to, you know, it's all right for you to make these sort of comments. You could move up through the ranks. Um, so I've sort of appreciated it a little bit more um, since I've stopped playing. Not so much about me, but when you look at Moen Ali and you yeah. look at that Moen Ali moment where at Edge Baston where he wins player of the series or whatever and the England team are just about to spray their champagne and Cookie and all the team wave Moen in and say Mo we want you in this photo please before you because of your your Muslim faith you don't want to be anywhere near alcohol and he comes in and then all the team say off you go Mo and I thought that was a real poignant moment as to this is how far we've come as to the team themselves understanding. And I think it was said this winter, wasn't it? As I know after the World Cup, Owen said about how proud he was of such a multicultural Jofra, Moen, Adil, etc. Having such a multicultural team win the World Cup and how what proud we were of that multicultural team. So I think actually more than me, the likes of Moen, the likes of what Owen said of that World Cup winning team, actually um that will have a, a huge bearing on the future that we are a multicultural nation and um, that's the way it should be do you have much of a sense at this stage in your life of a connection with india or, or is it more of an abstract relationship that that's family history rather than something that, that, that that's present in your life huge connection now never never will forget that connection ever i know I know my roots. I, anyone always asks me, you know, what are you? I, I'm English. That, that There is no doubt in my heroes growing up were Graham Gooch and David Gower and Ian Botham. If, if not English, European, my golfing hero was Seve Ballesteros. When I put on a game of cricket, I want England to win. It, there is no, that is 100%. But I never forget my roots and my dad and what my dad had to sacrifice and where my dad came from. And when I go back to India, I'll visit our old house when i go to madras chennai i will go to the chepok stadium my my dad had, when when i was there as a captain in a one day game we went they made us honorary members at the mcc that chepok stadium they did a big function for me and my dad and made us both and i saw the pride on my dad's face uh, i ended up getting one or something in the actual game in the one day international and he'd flown all that way but um you know i will never forget that side of me um and i'm very proud proud pride or proud of that side of me i have to be perfectly honest so um you know and it you know where 
what's going on with Indian cricket um, is magnificent. You know, I've been out to do that. I saw it, watched it yesterday for the first time, cricket in Mumbai and the things we do out there. And actually, since being in television, you get recognised more out there. So as a player walking down the street, as an England player, hardly got recognised. As now, as a broadcaster, you walk, you you know, you walk around India and you just it, how they cope with it. You just do not know how Kohli and Tendulkar copes with the sort of adulation you get out there, and not in your face. Not, you know, I asked Sachin this: How do you cope with it? And he was like, he was spot on. He said. They are so nice and so friendly um, that you feel that that's what you do and that's what they, they do and you get on with it. I'm mindful of uh, how generous you've been with your time and how much we focused on sort of that 15-year window when you were in and out of the England side and leading the team. But remiss of us not to sort of ask, just as we tail off the interview, about, about your last 15 years really as being, well, longer than that now, being a, a commentator going around the world. Uh, from, from my perspective, it, it strikes me that, you know, a few things. One... You're always there at women's cricket and you always know the intricate detail of women's cricket, which suggests that you take this very seriously. And I'm not sort of casting aspersions uh, upon anyone in particular, but you've clearly taken it upon yourself to um, treat the role um, as diligently as you did your cricketing career. Uh, Is that how you see it as well, that every time you stand behind the mic that you've got a responsibility to the players on the field to do your absolute best every single time? Uh excellent question and it's probably a question that you should ask but you shouldn't ask to be honest if you know what I mean in that I don't I honestly don't see it why we shouldn't as broadcasters pay as much attention as any other form of cricket especially from what you we have seen what you have seen if you do go out of your way to see the way they train their practice their skill levels um, if you do sit down with that Thai captain um, Tipok and see the smile on her face and when you ask her how much did you enjoy your day and she says too much you understand what it means to those women as to what they they have done and I, I have a daughter that plays the game I coach at a lower level of women's school girl cricket I, I watch women's sport Australia do women's sport fantastic when we were out there you put, picked up the back pages of the paper, there would be cricket, golf, football, Aussie rules, women's. It was unbelievable how well Australia do women's sport. And that is just the way it should be. And if you're going to do it, do it as well as you can. I took the mick out of you there. You know, you've done your prep or whatever. Do your prep. Do your research. Do it doubly diligently because... You're not going to know some of these names. You're not going to know their stats. Make sure you go and give it, you know, give it um, the credit it deserves. And that final, that day at the MCG, come on. If you weren't lifted by that, then you ain't a cricketer. You're not a broadcaster, to be honest. That was amazing. And I'll tell you something about that Aussie team. For Meg Lanning and her team to nail it the way they did under that pressure to put in their best performance ever tells you something about Lanning and her team. That was unbelievable. Men's or women's, you're, you're obviously someone who's really worked on your craft and, and done that quite consciously. When we listen to you commentate now, you, you, there's a whole extra level of polish than th- there was earlier on. You're a commentator who happened to be a player, not a player who has now become a commentator. Um, that's the way that 
we'd see your work now. Was it a conscious aim when you went into it to to make sure you went about it that way to treat this as professionally as you had your playing and, and to make sure that you could challenge yourself to get better at it and, um, and really commit to it? Uh, absolutely. Um, treat it exactly like you were um, when I was a player. Make sure you do it as well as you can. In fact, probably, probably doubly as hard because as broadcasters, you know, you can make a, I suppose you could as a player, but you can make a real fool of yourself. Some of the live stuff you do, if you haven't done it properly, like the game of cricket, this broadcasting can really catch you out. I was lucky in that, as I say, and he keeps getting a mention and I must stop mentioning him, but Ather's, you know, the lad I'd grown up with, he had gone into it, the Channel 4, and had done really well. That Channel 4 team were brilliant. And I'd watched him do it, and I thought, yeah, again, you know, peers always look at people that you'd grown up with, and I'd seen how well he was doing it, and I thought, right, if he's done it, I've got to try and do it um, like that. But the key point of that question you just asked is, I would say, is the mindset. If I, if I gave one bit of advice to anyone trying to become a broadcaster is that, some of them go in into it as if they're still a cricketer, that they're a cricketer that now does a bit of commentary. You know, I give Ian Ward as a very good example. People forget Ian Ward played for England. He, he, Ian Ward does a broadcast. He is a broad. If you asked Ian Ward what he is, he is a broadcaster. He's not an ex-cricketer. He doesn't tell people he was an ex-cricketer. So if you can have that mindset of, um, and I have that mindset now, exactly what you just said that I'm a broadcaster who used to play cricket. And in fact, I've only just realised recently that I've, I've been a broadcaster longer than I played um, international cricket. So this is this is who I am now, so try and do it as best you can. Yeah, and I think that's partly why Sky Cricket's held up as the as the gold standard, right? I mean, there, there are a, a whole group of people in your commentary box who... Well, there's a reason, I suppose, why you're called upon to do the global events. Look at the... I mean, I suppose the, the World Cup final last year. It's yourself and Ian Smith, who's part of the Sky Cricket team when when, it, when New Zealand visit uh, the UK. The, the the moment you got to call last year, Ben Stokes, uh, the Headingley Miracle, that'll go down as one of the iconic bits of cricket commentary for, for as long as we, we follow the game. But there's another side of it, too, and I just wanted to quickly touch on the interviewing elements. So I suppose you're normally on the other side of the, the desk with these kind of interviews these days. And the interview or series of um, uh, documentary uh, interviews you did with Kevin Peterson last year, um, you didn't fuck around. Uh, it was a serious interview. <laughs> it was a serious interview with a, a bloke who... Um, a cantankerous individual uh, who you've got a long-standing relationship with as a colleague and, and a teammate and, and an adversary, I suppose, at the very start of his career. But um, putting all that to one side, you really did the job you were meant to do and, and you really went after him in a professional and diligent way, but you asked the tough questions. And how difficult can that be uh, for someone? And I don't want to sort of echo what Jeff and I have asked before, but um, that other side of the game as a broadcaster asking the toughest questions when it may not necessarily come comfortable being confrontational with other cricketers. Um, yeah, I was lucky in that Kevin uh, is a good subject, let's be honest. Yeah, um, yeah. And, Kevin, and Kevin, for all his other issues Kevin gives as good as he gets he he will answer he won't he won't I was expecting Kevin to be a, a mellowed a little bit and you know sort of maybe sort of I'm not going to answer that I'm not going to do that I don't want to touch that Kevin was quite open give as good as you got Nas and I'll give back so he was a good mm. subject 
um, and fair play to him. Now, you can debate some of his answers or whatever. That's the whole point of a documentary. But um, he gave as good as he got. And I, and, and I got on with Kevin. I've always got on with Kevin. Mm. I see him in small in small amounts. So, But I've always got on with him for that, you know, because I'm quite outspoken. He's quite outspoken. Um, I, uh, um, I think the mindset was... It was, it was also difficult in that documentary because... Not everyone that wanted to say what happened could say what happened. So we were trying to get Cookie. We were trying to get Andy Flower, Pryor, Broad, Anderson. You know, Swanee did a very good interview. Graham, um, Andrew Strauss did a very good interview. So we there, were, uh, there weren't too many wanting to put the other side of Kevin. So someone had to put the other side of Kevin and, uh, and tell him, you know, when the text gate happened, what were you thinking, etc. So someone had to go at him um, reasonably. I guess with that, I'm, it's in my nature that I don't, I'm not that fussed about what people think. So if you have to, if you're always worried about what people think about you, um, if you're so busy trying to save your job, you're not actually doing your job, that that's not me, I'm afraid. So just, if a question needs asking, you know, ask it. It was a similar situation with Justin Langer and Tim Payne in those raw months after the the sandpaper situation in Cape Town and you were the one who sat down with Langer in England when Australia went to play some one-day games there, their, their first situation out. And a lot of people would have pulled their punches in that scenario, but you also didn't come across as someone who was enjoying Australia's discomfort you know, at, at a as an Englishman, it was you were you were asking the questions that needed to be asked at the time, and even if they, uh, it might have been an awkward situation in the room. Oh, absolutely, I, I I don't have any sort of baggage when with that sort of thing. Oh, Australia having a really tough period. Let's have a go at Australia now. It it wouldn't have made any difference to me if it was England. If it was England had done that, I'd have had to ask whoever Root and whoever the captain and, and, and whoever the coach was, the difficult questions. Um, I, again, was lucky that I think that Justin Langer, if you do a list of people you'd like to interview, I think Justin Langer, as we've seen um, from um, from the test doco, um, he's, he's been right up the top of my list of people you want to interview because he gives um, good, solid, from-the-heart answers um, like like he did on that occasion, so he um, he gave as good as he got again, and and Tim Payne seems like a very decent, down to earth guy who would answer um, you know absolutely from the heart. So it was a difficult time for Australian cricket. And what you didn't want to do is go over it too much, you know, over the World Cup, then to keep going on about sandpaper gate, and that's another difficult bit of about broadcaster is that sometimes, even though the English public, because they're now coming over again, and then it's the World Cup and the Aussies are over again, and they have had their first chance to protest about sandpaper and boo um, Warner and boo Smith, do you keep going and do you keep asking when you actually know, you know what, the Aussie camp probably at this stage have had enough of this. They want to move on, even though the English public don't. I've got one other question I really wanted to ask you with broadcasting. Adam was talking about Headingley and, and the World Cup final and, and so on. Is it more of a thrill to you now to have played in great cricketing moments or to now be the voice of them, be the person who translates that moment for millions of people watching or listening? <laughs> Good question. Uh, it really depends how it goes and how it ends up. 
Um, as a player, you get out, and most people would have forgotten my horrendous dismissals. And it'll be there, someone, you know, there's some good social media coming out now where people are putting on old footage and we can have a laugh or whatever. But in general, it's forgotten. As a broadcaster, if you if you if you get it wrong on those, can you know, they've been played. Sky are doing it this weekend. They're doing the Stokes Headingley innings and they're doing the World Cup again. And I could just imagine myself sitting here now thinking, God, if I'd really messed up those <laughs> moments, they're going to be played forever. You know, Richie Benno's moment in 2005 when he calls it absolutely perfectly. Ian Smith, I mean, can you think of Ian Smith in that semi-final in uh, Auckland, was it the semi-final? Um, calling that semi-final, calling the World Cup final the way he did and absolutely nailing it. I know for a fact a couple of the England boys have been up to Ian Smith, Johnny Bairstow being one of them, thanking Ian Smith for calling it the way he did. So, you know, all I think actually and uh, is, gosh, thank, thank God I didn't mess those moments up. And when I left that day, the World Cup final or Headingley driving home, that was my abiding memory actually was not, oh, Nass, you were okay there. It was, Nas, <laughs> you didn't mess that up sort of thing. So Just, just relief. Just relief, basically. Uh, it's probably a, a nice place to leave. What's well, been a very enjoyable uh, conversation, Nass. Uh, you're a giant of the game, a giant of the England game, and, and now of, of your current craft. It's been a joy to spend some time in isolation with you. Uh, thanks so very much for being part of The Final Word. Thank you. Hi, I'm Ian Chappell. You're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. Jeff, before we get back to the final stretch of the final word this week, a word for our friends at the Satphone Shop. Satphone. Oh, the shop of Satphones. The shop where you get Satphones. Where else do you get them? From the shop with Satphones. Satphoneshop.com. <laughs> um, they've got... They've got a whole new thing, Adam. They've got a whole new kit. They've got a whole new deal, which makes it a whole lot cheaper and easier and lighter and more portable. That means that you can turn your existing smartphone into a sat phone. How do you like that? That sounds very encouraging. I mean, I, I've said when we used to talk about sat phone a lot um, last year, back in the days when you could leave your home, mm. um, that I'm convinced there's some fucking meta conspiracy theory about why there's no reception around King's Cross Station where I'm at most days. Um, and if this means that I can go and pull out my phone at King's Cross and access the internet via a satellite, via sat phone, why well, I'm all in on well, that. Well, you can't because you can't go to King's Cross um, or you will be arrested. <laughs> Not <laughs> so, for a while. <laughs> or heavily fined. But, but there, and rightly so. There are a lot of people in remote places, remote locations, and um, people who are, who are hiding out, you know, billionaires on their luxury yachts and, and so on and so forth who probably need satellite phone connections because the regular networks don't get to them. So they've invented this thing, this little box, this little like super spy looking black box that you clip onto your belt or whatever or carry around in your bag. It's called a Zolio, Z-O-L-E-O. And what it does is it connects to the satellite for you and then it makes like a little local area network that connects to your existing phone. And so it gives you uh, a message platform and and a phone calling platform on your existing smartphone that gets hooked up to a satellite by this little box. So you can text people or call them 
wherever, whenever, Shakira, all around the world, as long as you can see the sky, you can make your smartphone into, and it's also way cheaper than your, your standard, you know, your conventional satellite phones are pretty serious bits of equipment for pretty serious outdoors people. This one's coming in at, what, about a quarter of the price of, uh, of those serious bits of kit. So it's actually workable for, you know, for, it, it's your more everyday ordinary person who is able to access this stuff and is able to use outer space to talk to people they love. And isn't that nice? I love the idea of sticking their phone into the air, shine bright like a diamond, and then they'll be connected to the sat phone network. Yeah. Uh, pioneers in this space, Jeff. Uh, we love working with the sat phone shop, sat phone shop. Dot com. Get all the additional information. If this is something that's of interest, let them know. You know the final word. I'm sure they'll look after you. Yeah, get a Zolio. That's what it's called. Zolio Canyonero. Um, and, and that is going to hook you up to people via space, which is pretty sweet. Indeed. Let's get back on with the end of the show. This is the final word. Adam Collins, Jeff Lemon. Uh, thanks again to NASA Hussein for being, again, very, very generous uh, with his time and going through so many things. I, I mean, we've said this about interview subjects before, Jeff, but NASA's had so much... I mean, I feel like we brushed over um, some huge chunks totally. of, of his life in the game, which, which says just kind of how intimately involved he's been in the workings of the sport since yeah really the, the mid 80s i mean we didn't even touch on his moral leadership uh, in the 2003 world cup when england refused to tour zimbabwe um, which was a significant thing at the time we didn't really touch on sort of uh, his legacy as a as a player as well as a captain but uh, there's a lot there and 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 jeff these days uh, we're grateful to share the the press box with him in his capacity as a columnist and of course he's upstairs uh, calling on on sky cricket we're grateful to sky cricket as well for uh, allowing us to have that time with NASA today because he truly is uh, one of the best in the business. Well, it was pretty interesting that uh, Karachi in the dark got one sentence, I think, and, and Hansi Cronje's leather jacket barely got a mention. And, you know, all of these major stories that we didn't really have time to go into because there was so much to do. And I'm, and I'm glad we didn't touch on the, the toss at Brisbane either, which, which might disappoint uh, some people. Uh, and, and that's reasonable if you kind of were tuning in to hear Nas talk about the blue at Brisbane. You're just uh, back tuning in to hear us give him shit for about an hour. <laughs> yeah. And the thing is, like, you know, NASA was a risk taker as a captain. Part of the reason he was so uh, well thought of as a leader was that he did uh, have that, um, he did sort of do things that weren't expected of him and he explained that that comparison to Stephen Fleming in that respect and Brisbane was a faux pas which he's talked about repeatedly indeed it gets brought up every single time uh, that, that, that Australia play England anywhere almost that uh, they'll, they'll talk about the toss and they'll talk about Nasser Hussain so uh, in a way I felt like we didn't really need to go there because if you want to hear Nasser talk about that well just wait till the next time that Australia play England and I'm sure you hear about it there so we used our time hopefully um, for, for more virtuous uh, conversation topics but yes uh, thanks to Nasser one of the true good guys in the game. Uh, Jeff, another um, great guy in the game uh, who cops a lot of shit, uh, but he's uh, he's umpired more internationals than anyone from the elite panel and and this week he's done a really good thing. Alim Dar um, has opened his restaurant in Lahore to anyone who's homeless or unemployed um, through this crisis. He's thrown the doors open to give them free meals. I thought he deserved a bit of a shout out for that because um, he does cop a lot of shit, Alim Dar, as, as the members of the elite panel often do. Um, but yes, this was noteworthy during the week. Yeah, it's interesting the number of times I've heard people have a go at him on the basis that oh he's he's 
the worst of the elite panel or something like that. Uh, the ICC keep very detailed stats on their umpires and on their decision making, and it's not borne out in the numbers. You know, LMDAR's decision making is uh, very much on the money the last, vast majority of the time, and, um, and and he's very well respected within the organisation. So, if you're anecdotally saying you think he makes a lot of mistakes, he actually doesn't because you don't notice all of the times when he doesn't make mistakes because that's the the issue with umpiring. Yeah, speaking of the ICC. Jeff, they're very much into their contingency planning now. They had a board meeting during the week and they're looking at postponing a number of things that fall under their umbrella. Yeah, so Nagaraj Golapudi on Crick Info was reporting about this, that the T20 World Cup could be pushed out to next year, to 2021, um, and then there was supposed to be one the following year almost wasn't there, which would then yeah, that's right. go to 2022 in India ahead of the 50-over World Cup in 2023. So how many bloody World Cups do you need in one sport? But, um, yeah, they, they might be log-jammed for a while yet. Yeah, it's quite conceivable we'll have World Cups for the men in, in three consecutive years. So Australia 2021, if they don't get up in time this year, 2022 in India, and then 2023, uh, the next 50-over uh, World Cup, which, of course, is to be played in India. Um, uh, Jeff, uh, another bit of uh, positive news before we break for today is that Ian O'Brien has got himself a flight home. For those who weren't following this on social media, Ian O'Brien, former New Zealand quick colleague of ours uh, these days in various press boxes and commentary boxes uh, around the country, um, he he was trying to get back from New Zealand to England where he currently lives. As he explained, his wife has a pre-existing medical condition which leaves her susceptible to COVID-19. So it was really important that he got home, but flight after flight got cancelled. He was in a terrible spot. He ran a crowdfunding campaign to get him back to England and, and the encouraging news there is that on April the 4th, uh, Ian will be back in the UK. So well done to all of those who donated to make it so. And uh, and a shout out to Ian O'Brien, who's one of the truly good guys in cricket. Yeah, and it, it's a hard spot to get out to, um, to get out from New Zealand at the moment. They've shut down almost all air traffic. So uh, to be able to actually get out of the country was a lot harder than you might think. Uh, that's about all we've got on our plate for this week. It is. It's been a long episode. Uh, it got noted last week. How did you guys go for an hour and a half when there's no cricket on? Well, we've gone for two hours this week, but that's the way it goes. So thanks to uh, Dave Collins and Jay Mueller and Astrid Edwards from Bad Producer Productions. Uh, um, thanks to Nasser Hussain uh, for, um, again, for being part of the show. Uh, thanks to our loyal uh, patron subscribers, our loyal listeners. As I mentioned, there'll be um, these other episodes dropping into the feed uh, with Dan and myself looking at the history of commentary over the next next couple of weeks uh, thanks to Seabus thanks to the Sat Phone Shop thanks to Wisden uh, we're grateful that we can run this show uh, all the way through the isolation period and um, it, look it might be longer it might be shorter than this who's to know but we're just really pleased that people seem to be uh, enjoying what we're able to do and hopefully we can keep your company through this tough time I hope it's not longer because if it is <laughs> things are going to get very difficult <laughs> And next week on the show, I might as well plug it. We've got Lawrence Booth on, the editor of The Wisdom Almanac. Of course, the good book comes out next week. There'll be no formal dinner and launch, but the book will still be there. So stick with the final word. We'll be with you throughout. Thank you, Jeff. I'm glad you're feeling healthier and better. It's been a lot of fun. Thanks for listening. This is The Final Word. We'll talk next week. See you then. I had to go about it, write it out and find it